Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bow. And it's finally here, the moment you've all been waiting for, and the one we've uh, been slightly dreading uh, <laughs> in the end of the year rush to uh, compile our lists of our top 10 favorite horror games of the year. If you missed the first part of our coverage detailing our number 10 through number 6 picks, and a few Best of Category awards, be sure to go check out the previous episode to catch up because today we are going to be discussing our final five horror games of the year. As a quick reminder, here's how things will go for the episode, much like they did in the previous one. Neil and I will go one by one through our picks, and if one of us mentions the title that's on the other's list before they've had a chance to mention it, we'll pause that particular discussion and move on to the other person's next pick. So Neil... How did you fare in picking the order of your final five horror games of the year? I'm sure it was uh, just as nerve wracking as it was for me. Yeah, I kind of put myself in a hole with where I'd pick things and put them. It's like, well, I can't move that now because I've already put that there in, in the previous half. And yeah, so I, last week, I think really was my point of making, you know, last minute, last gasp editions, you know, which one of which definitely you know, ended up in this top five just because i was like fuck it this is mine this has to be in there um yeah so not too bad i must say how about you yeah so there was one or two games that we're going to talk about today that i'm almost positive are not on your list so i had a little more flexibility in kind of shuffling them around um but it was the thing where i mentioned to you before we were recording that it was like Right up until that 12th hour where I was just like, oh man, which one, which one? But then, you know, my uh, my reason kicked in. I was like, fuck it, it's my list. If people don't agree, that's more than fine with me. But uh, yeah, I think to start things off for our uh, part two of our Game of the Year coverage, we're going to start with another one of those category awards, which is going to be the scariest scene of the year. For you, what was the scariest scene from a game you played? See, this is always tricky, I think, when you're a horror fan, scary gets put into this category of like well if it isn't scary it's not horror blah 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 like this and it's like and if that's the case then nothing's scary you know nothing's horror um because there are so few moments that really make it so yeah even looking through my top 10 of things I think, well you know there's nothing really there that's super scary to me you know um but i suppose i, I found one thing out of that and another that didn't make it so dying light 2 is one um early on there's a hospital area you go in where you're basically having to sort of sneak for supplies through all these sleeping undead which is like a new part of that game at that point and you know try not to piss off them off knowing that it will bring on you know the volatiles the beefy ones and yeah that was really intense as an early starter for that game you know um the best parts of the original dying light were always the panic of being caught in the dark or outside you know at night and yeah that that was a nice early twist on what that could do and probably one of the better ones all throughout i think in terms of like really making you feel it because um yeah it's like halfway through the sneaking around you suddenly learn that yes there's a volatile in there as well with you and you know it sort of culminates in a set piece of like having to run away from that volatile through the hospital into the light so that was a really good one um so i doubled up because the other one is immortality and i can't really say what it is <laughs> because it, it, it spoils too much but i think anyone who's played it would know it is all i can say on that one it is 
exactly why that game can be classified as a horror game because there is so much to it that it's just strange and otherworldly but that is a really woof like really impactful scene for me in terms of what it did and you know given what that game does and like combining mediums it, it was the perfect encapsulation of that um what about you yeah, so my uh, scariest scene would be immortality. There you go. <laughs> uh, and, the, you know, there were multiple moments throughout it. But I think that really for me, that it was the first moment where you interact with the footage in a way that has this sort of like shocking revelation for the player, right? Mm. And so it's not necessarily that it was, you know, like a traditional type of scare. It was a jump scare or something like that. But it's just the fact that in the moment... I was kind of like aghast at the realization of, oh, this is the horror element that we've been hearing about. You know, within that first hour, you're kind of like scattered, really, when you're playing that game. You're learning yeah. the mechanics. You're getting a feel on things. You're trying to piece together parts of the story. It feels a little aimless. But when you have that realization, it does catch you off guard because it's not – the game doesn't really prepare you for it, which if anything, you know, that's what should be the buildup to the scariest moments and something you're not expecting – in it being unexpected, it doesn't have to be along the traditional lines of no. something that jumps out at you right away or like some type of cheap jump scare or something along those lines. Um, but Immortality had that moment where I was just like, oh, shit, that's what I have to do to really, you know, unlock the true game or true story of Immortality. Yeah. And that was like earth shattering for me with that game. Um, and I would say for like a follow up, it would probably be the Mortuary Assistant, hmm. even though, you know. A lot of those scares in that, you know, you could classify them as being jump scares. It's more about how they're employed rather than, you know, the actual moment to moment kind of scares in that game yeah. for me. Um, I found that it had a really good pacing and just the devs clearly had the wherewithal to be like, well, if we inundate the player with these early on, it's going to be that type of experience where, you know, you're going to play it once or twice, perhaps, and then not return to it. But yeah. I found that. They do such a great job of crafting atmosphere, of making that a place that is unnerving before anything supernatural even happens, so, that it makes that pacing and that deployment of those jump scares at specific moments based on you know how your shift is uh, shaping out really, really well done and something that gave a little more sort of oomph factor to uh, some of those scares, which some of them you've probably seen before in other games, but you certainly have not seen them deployed as well as they were with uh, the Mortuary no, Assistant. Yeah, it definitely does quite something quite effective in that, and it's just got a nice variety, I think, as well. Yeah, but uh, I think before we dive into your number five pick for the year, let's do a quick recap of last week's episode yeah. that was our rundown of uh, picks number 10 through 6. So, Neil, why don't we begin with you? So, my number 10 was Elden Ring from, from Software. My number 10 was Mortuary Assistant. Uh, my number nine was Mothman 1966 by LCB Game Studio. My number nine was The Shopping List. My number eight was A Plague Tale Requiem by Asoba. My number eight was Metal Hellsinger. My number seven was Night at the Gates of Hell by Black Eyed Priest, a.k.a. Jordan King. My number seven was Immortality. Mm -hmm. And my number six was Go Fly a Kite by Digital Chutsky. And my number six was Vampire Survivors. Indeed it was. Two games that we are going to get to unpack a little bit more than we were able to last week. Um, but that's the nature of lists. But Neil, what was your number five pick for horror game of the year? Well, we are going on a perfect uh, fly off here into 
Vampire Survivors. That is my number five by Ponkel. Um, Vampire Survivors is, on paper, the simplest game in you could think of. You know, it, it very much has a clicker sort of thing, but not. You know, in terms of like you do a thing, things happen, blah blah blah. Time goes on, and you can upgrade and whatever. Um, you basically have to kill lots of monsters, but you don't attack them yourselves. The your moves just happen. You know, and the further you go, the more you abilities you pick up and the more things are getting thrown out of you at once you know and you can upgrade their strength and speed and all these other things and all the while all you have to do is move that's it and this um sort of top down-ish sort of 2d sprite style environment and you know the monster crowds just get bigger and bigger and bigger you generally have anywhere between 15 and 30 minute time limits to sort of beat the level there's you know extra things beyond that and it is just i don't know we've gone about this before of course only recently uh on the inventory uh, when we sort of did the review of that and so that should give you a hint as why it's so high in our individual lists here so the simple nature of it is incredibly deceptive you know i think something that needs to be said straight away about this game is you are very much in the mindset of looking at it to begin with and going, okay, okay, it's okay, I suppose it works, it works. And then very quickly, you suddenly start to see, oh, shit, oh, shit. And you just get these waves of, like, revelation for something so simple that is amazing, how it just goes, constantly surprises you when all you ever do is walk. Yeah, that's all you do. Just one stick. That is all you ever have to do. That's why it's the perfect thing for multi-format. That's why it works on mobile as well as it does on console. And yeah, it's just ridiculously addictive and really deep for what it is. You know, like you know the secrets you can find and the combinations of weapons to make super weapons that you can get and like the little bonuses and you can get and all the stuff you can unlock. It's really full fat for what it is for a, something that costs a few quid. It's remarkable, you know. I th- this is one of those where I was still umgenaring about it last week and moved it up because I was like, I'd played like a bunch more of it, and then since then I played even more of it again. So it is the perfect game to go. You know what? I'll play a couple of games of this while I've got an hour because I can't think of what else to play. And you do, and then you're like, oh, maybe one more, maybe maybe one more. It's brilliant just brilliant there's no way short way of putting it yeah it is a remarkable achievement and just shows that you don't have to do all the things you know and have all the bells and whistles to make a compelling you know, game that you want to come back to time and again and it, you know it's great <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's the best way to put it i mean it is that type of game that capitalizes on its simplicity but that simplicity you kind of can see throughout every hmm. layer of its design. But as you said, you know, finding out that there is actually a good bit more to it than that. It's just sort of the metagame nature that, you know, who knows what percentage of people would even think to look into like specific builds and hmm. strategies and stuff like that. And yet once you kind of have that realization of, oh, there are mechanics here that don't fundamentally alter, you know, in the moment, how you traverse that, you know, that hell that is those hundreds or thousands of enemies at some points. But 
at the same time, you know, you can be learning from every run. Exactly. Um, and I think that that is a level of depth that, and you know, as you said, we talked about the game fairly recently and I was kind of like, well, I really do enjoy this. Like I was genuine. I enjoyed that game tremendously when we covered it for the inventory. But in the back of my mind, I was like, well, a week removed, a month removed, possibly three months removed. Am I still going to be playing? And, mm. you know, I've still been playing it periodically every week since we covered it last. And I foresee that the DLC that's coming, the fact that it's also on mobile now, which I you think DLC is been... out now, actually, that we are talking. So, oh, yeah, you came perfect. out yesterday from when we were recording, which would have been Friday. So, yeah, it, yeah so I forgot about that myself, but that's uh, something I'm going to go and invest in. <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that before the DLC even came out, I probably spent seven or eight hours playing this game that yeah. on paper, it seems like something you would play, you know, a handful of times and then abandon, but it has that just like addictive quality. The fact that it's now on mobile, uh, it means that it's pretty disastrous for my productivity <laughs> outside of being away from my console and whatnot. But I think overall, you know, that is the quality that I'm most impressed with that it always comes down to just the core base mechanics where, you know, the fact that you don't have to click to attack on paper, that sounds simplistic, but yeah. it really does have an element to not getting the fatigue perhaps that maybe some people have with something like Diablo, right? Thinking about yeah. a game that you have to, you know, click a thousand times to get through, you know, one dungeon or something from picking up items to killing enemies. And with something like this, as you said, removing any sort of button input and it's more just about you have to face the direction and you have this automatic attack that happens yeah. every, I don't know, two seconds or something. Um, there is a quality to that that I don't fatigue as much. So I, instead of playing for you know, 15 minutes or 30 minutes, I find myself playing for an hour sometimes or 90 minutes sometimes. Yeah. Um, and it really is that type of game. I think I forget who it was, but they had talked a lot about um, how this is like their lunch break game. Mm. And I think that that's not only a perfect description of it, right? You can pick up and play for 15, 30 minutes and then Absolutely. move along. But at the same time, the fact it's on mobile now means <laughs> some people are going to be missing their uh, their bus and train stops probably. Yeah. And I mean, Back in the day in retail work, I would definitely have taken an extended toilet break for, for things like this <laughs> <laughs> or two. <laughs> Probably would have been That's out a box quote if I've ever heard one for a dev. <laughs> and, you know, I, I really like bullet hell style shooters. You know, I think that's one of my like pet loves as far as game types go. And having something that kind of inverses that, you know, and makes you, as the quote goes, you are the bullet hell, you know, and it works. It works really well. I love when you sort of take a, a well-established idea like that, you know, a wave of bullets are coming at you, blah, blah, blah. Instead of that, it's like you are the wave of bullets and everything's coming at you. I love that. That's a brilliant change of pace with it. And I think that to me is the most clever part of the whole game. You know, it's just, it's deceptive how some, just switching something as simple as that round works but you know there you go and you know undoubtedly it has created already a bunch of wannabes and will be's i'm sure but uh so that's the true impact of a game you know is how many ripoffs will you see within the first year and you know yeah. <laughs> it's not even been a year and it's got plenty already so yeah it, it's going to be huge in terms of impact over the years i think let alone like that um, so people listening to us going, well, why isn't it higher? There you go. Because there were better games. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, such is the way. 
such is the way so jay what is your number five my number five is growing my grandpa from developer yames okay yeah i definitely don't have this in any way shape or form <laughs> this was one of my uh my safe picks i thought because it's not only very obscure of a title but at the same time you know i figured you would have for sure sent this my way if you had found out about it uh, ahead of time or if you had played it yourself just because it I, i'm fairly confident in saying this is something that's right up your alley just as much as it was mine. I'm going to surreptitiously look for it while you're doing that. <laughs> so Growing My Grandpa is a body horror point-and-click adventure game in which you play Adrian, an introverted child with a dysfunctional home life who discovers something within her basement, which she refers to as her grandpa. Uh, the game is broken up over the course of five days. The player will learn the secret history of the house, that which resides within the basement, and whether or not Adrian's stories are entirely based in fantasy or in reality. Those days are broken up between interviews with a school counselor of sorts that's trying to decipher her cryptic and increasingly strange stories. Yeah. And so you have this brief moment where she's being interviewed, but then you get to go into you know her shoes and explore the basement and everything that's in there. And so as far as the gameplay is concerned, you know, the player's investigating that basement for items to access new areas and quickly unlocks a room that contains an entity that's slowly but surely changing into something. Yeah. Uh, you'll have to feed it, teach it words, and cover all there is to know about it and the protagonist herself. This would have been prime for Horror Bites, right? This is like a two-hour game, yeah. if that. Um, but what really stood out about this game is that every single part of it is not only incredibly well-polished, but at the same time, you know, it is such a stellar example of how the most like small design decisions when they come together, it really just makes for an, an experience that is really unsettling um, throughout the entirety of my time with the game. Um, you know, it has this kind of crude FMV style visuals that are, you know, naturally uh, <laughs> very unnerving and uncomfortable to look at. Neil, I'm sure you're looking at some images yeah. that show what the characters look like or just the environments. Um, but also I found that with that crude, graphical style you know it leaves some things to the imagination not to say that you can't decipher things but it's just kind of an inherent part of that graphical style and that you can't pick out the details of like the entity as mm -hmm. well as you could if you know it was maybe a little more refined which is perfect for this type of experience because the game is so solely based in discovery um, and you know it has a great soundtrack that goes along to it so when you're sifting through documents or in some cases you know you have to sift through drawers and pick up garbage to reveal items that then, you know, play into how you interact with the entity at the end of each day. Um, it just is very unnerving. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that there is a real stellar quality of writing here too. Um, you know, not to say we haven't played plenty of smaller games that have effective writing, but this felt like the, probably the best version of someone that's attempting to do a creepy pasta style storytelling, yeah. but just understands that, you know, you want to inform the player about, you know, the world, the inhabitants of the world, the past history, but it just as they're coming on, you know, explaining too much, I feel like it trails off a little bit. And then yeah. you have to, you know, search for the next piece of information that then reveals something else. But you're never allowed to feel like you have a complete grasp on what is happening or the background of certain things. And, you know, the more you, of course, uh, uncover clues and things like that. You have to go digging. <laughs> that will then, you know, reveal more and more. But just the fact that you don't necessarily get like a specific concrete answer to some things, 
just, you know, it lets your imagination run wild, wild in a way that uh, I find to be, you know, sticking with me more so than if I had all those questions answered. Uh, again, it's like a two hour experience. There's, I believe, two endings, um, but it is an experience that, you know, stuck with me in a way that uh, seldomly uh, these types of small experiences do. And I really do mean that. It's something that I played twice. And uh, I even had one of my roommates, you know, come over, check it out and see it. And they were just like, this is the weirdest fucking thing that I've ever, <laughs> I've ever seen you play before. Um, but then I had them, you know, read a couple of the documents that you find. And they're like, this is really, really disturbing, which, you know, I think that's a pretty, a pretty good uh, indication that this game has a quality of writing that maybe sidesteps some of the usual types of logs or yeah. things like that, that you find in, uh, in genre titles. But yeah, this is one that I think we would have naturally covered for horror bites if i had uh, discovered it a little sooner in the year and i i wish i had but i'm happy to have the chance to chat about it oh, yeah. uh, for our end of the year yeah i mean looking at it, everything it ticks all the boxes that i like and ironically is a big reason why another game got higher in my list you know, because it had this sort of weirdo point and click vibe going on and so you know it is undeniable that that's one of those things that's in in a big way you know a game that i never got round to this year was the excavation of a hobbs barrow you know which is you know, getting praise up and down the board you know and i'd love to have played it and that's got like a folk horror sort of point and click thing so hopefully i'll get to that at some point we'll cover it in the future but you know it's you know when we do horror bites and stuff you know how many of those point and click or text adventure games do we come across you know and we're like oh yes this is great this works this yeah, we we mentioned them even when we did the horror bites game of the year. So yeah, it's lovely to see that it's just so much variety and the oddball stuff is just up there. You know, it really is just making them because I think that the core of point and click adventures is this undeniable oddness in the best ones. You know, even like the the mainstream classics when you think about them, like uh, stuff like day of the tentacle or even broken sword there's weirdness and silliness in there that, that just that is what makes it you know also monkey island obviously as well yeah so it's great to see a new generation of developers sort of making their own headway with that yeah so yeah i like that that's uh you know four quid over here so i will be uh putting that in my basket uh, soon in a minute so hopefully compare notes on that one uh sooner rather than later yeah. but uh before moving on to your number four pick yeah. let's do a quick uh mini best of category what was the best monster design of the year for you neil well there was plenty to choose from i would say here so it was uh very difficult to sort of pick just one but i'm going to just pick with this one because <laughs> I, I think uh, you know as much as Elden Ring had many great monster designs and, you know, there were some really cool stuff in games like uh, oh, Vampire Survivors even, you know, it's like um, or Weird West. I think, for me, the thing that has stood out the most and the best thing is the ballerina zombies from Night at the Gates of Hell. You know, I, I just, I love the absurd zombies in that game so, so much. Yeah, and to see that thing, the what you know, you go to that dance school with all the, the usual horror warnings, and it's like, okay, but when they not only come out and they are little ballerina dancers that fucking pirouette 
you know, whilst you're trying to shoot them. I just brilliant, you know. It was the, you know for a game that is very much going for a, the Italian Euro horror sort of vibe. Stuff like that was like brilliant. Love it. That that is you know hands down one of the reasons why you know I put it in my top ten. You know because it is just ludicrous in the best, most insane way. And it, yeah. That's the other thing, right? Is that when that when they first appear, you assume it's being done for a gag, right? Mm. Because Night at the Gates of Hell is a game that you know really does beautifully pair horror and humor, right? Mm. And of course, we will be diving into that sentiment a little bit. But I found that that particular segment that you mentioned, like again, you think that it's just going to be some kind of one-off gag, and then immediately turns terrifying because what do they do? They run at you, and if you were like me in that moment, I think that's the moment when you get the shotgun too. Um, you start to retreat and then I kind of like ran behind a desk to have a little distance between us and then they split up and they went one way once half of them went one way <laughs> the other half went the other way which then makes it like this terrifying moment of just being swarmed um, and you know not that I needed another uh, another example that <laughs> I've have the perfect co-host for this podcast but <laughs> Night at the Gates of Hell was also my pick for best monster design just because of that wonderful variety of zombie types yeah right again this would be the type of game thinking about you know the resources or just overall like the lo-fi scope of this type of game and yeah. you know jordan king's realm of horror i would have assumed for variety's sake there might have been you know five or six types of zombies right mm. and i wouldn't have you know i wouldn't have taken the game to task for that or anything but that was perhaps my expectation for again a game of this size and yet I think there's like 20 or 25 different varieties of zombies, each that have their own sort of like headshot animations or just overall their own, uh, not only designs, but like uh, size, I think. And there's one that, you know, of course, headshots are a big part of, you know, killing the zombies as quickly as possible. But there's one type of zombie that I believe its head hangs behind its yeah, back. Basically. So you have to kind of like <laughs> sidestep it to get that headshot. And I think even... There's one that crawls on all fours too, right? My yeah, memory I think so, yeah. serves me right. Yeah. So it's like, not only is there a great variety of designs, you know, there's one wearing a tuxedo, which always makes me laugh, but also, you know, the overall sort of strategy and getting that headshot that you get fairly comfortable with early on, all of a sudden you get this one sort of design variable that all of a sudden changes up your approach or it just makes, you know, an encounter that you thought would be relatively normal or sort of... Uh, uh, routine, all of a sudden it throws you this kind of like strategic wrinkle that all of a sudden can make that situation that much more intense. But uh, I also had a um, honorable mention for that, and that would be Choo Choo Charles, which is a game I didn't get to spend enough time to really even consider it for any sort of placement on my list. But I will say every time Choo Choo Charles shows up, it scared the shit out of me. And uh, <laughs> it was, you know, a uh, I'm I have a phobia about spiders anyways, but just seeing this larger than life thing that filled up my entire monitor <laughs> bearing down on me uh, was never not terrifying. Yeah, uh, that, that's a, a good segue into my number four because, you know, Tutor Charles has a dark tower sort of nod in what it is, um, in a, a maniacal train that, that is in one of the later books. And Weird West by Wolfeye Games is my number four. Is this in yours? No, it is not. It is not. Okay, and I, you know, often champion this in, in my head mostly that um, you know, Weird West is the best Dark Tower game we we ever get because it, it does so much that is very similar to that. You know, I believe 
the, in the next couple of weeks there should be an article on culture vultures coming out where I argue that very point um, and that's why I love it amongst other things but it's also the best Dark Tower game by former members of Arcane that you ever get as well so it's an immersive sim in that kind of world so the you know, Weird West doesn't initially live up to its name it's very straight and narrow um, but this is again why I argue that it is very Dark Tower-esque because when you go back to the gunslinger in that series of books by Stephen King, you know, that book is very plain by comparison to what comes after, you know, in terms of how broad the fantasy and the weirdness gets, you know, you, the first character you get is basically a gunslinger, you know, a bounty hunter and you don't see a lot of the weird. And then of course you find out that after that you go to another character and then another character and each character has something more, odd or occult you know you are a werewolf you're a, a native who worries about the curse of the wendigo you are you know a cultist you know all these and you are a pig man and all through all these things you know the thing again that ties it to me very much as art tariff um anyone's read those books the second book is the drawing of the free where uh, you know roland goes into a door and basically is in the head of the free people he is going to draw to his side for the battles ahead and he basically is existing in them at the same time they are you know, doing whatever they're doing and he can take control and you know the story here with weird west is that you are some person or entity that is basically jumping from each of these five characters to tell this overarching story you know and the great thing is you'll do a story with one of these characters you know, go to the next one. You can go back to the character that was inhabited before and you can recruit them. You know, they are themselves at that point and have no longer have the possession that you gave. But, you know, and they can still die and all those things. So it's crazy. You know, it's a game where you could lose pretty much every single main character by the end, you know, um, depending on how you choose to go with things. And it just gets even more apocalyptic the further you go in when you find out there's a reason for this body hopping and you know and where it's going to go from there just there's so much to do in that regard you know it's a great storytelling method but that's not all with this game it's the fact that it is you know this um isometric sort of version of what you know they did with prey and dishonored and things like that you know rafael colantonio is the guy who's headed up Wolfeye. Yeah, and he was um, the head on prey, you know, and you no, know, he was very upset when prey got you know bashed on release for certain things, and he, you know, it really just got to him that people didn't get it, and you know the fact that in the time since then, prey has just gathered more and more of appreciation. Um, it's kind of same with Weird West, I think. It, it's needed to be appreciated. I've seen people literally bounce off early, going saying, you know, it's not where's the weird in it you know it doesn't feel very weird it's like and i get that because it doesn't initially but it does dole that out and you know before patches it was a game that really did suffer from you know the aiming system was iffy at times and you know there were certain aspects of the game that needed fine tuning and you know they have been since then and now it's just you know absolutely stellar you know, thing it is fantastic in what it does yeah, I just fucking full on love it, you know, for what it's doing. It it just 
has everything about it is dedicated to an idea has all those immersive sim trimmings you wouldn't expect because obviously given the um viewpoint you would think oh, okay it wouldn't be like dishonored if anything that viewpoint and you know the way you're viewing the game actually gives it more freedom than arcane's games you know, there is so much more you know stuff happens that doesn't even involve you you know it's like you know towns you visit can have been raised to the ground and rebuilt as, over the time as you play the game with no impact by you but also just little decision, decisions you make you know like you let one guy go from a gang you know could end up coming back to bite you in the ass or bite other people in the ass you know you know they felt wounded so they went and attacked this place and then that place got cleared out so you'd go back to a town that held your savings somewhere like that and you'd find that the, it had been raided and the bank had been raided, looted and stuff like that. It's just, the depth in that game is phenomenal. And I just love its increasing weirdness and the horror aspect of it is, you know, it is just full of, like, monsters and weirdness and it's funny and it's clever and it just deserves so much more than just being... Shrugged out. Oh, you know, like many studios get when you get people who've worked on big games and, you know, the, while the initial, you know, excitement is there, it doesn't seem to follow through. People like shrug their shoulders and go, yeah, well, you know, it's like, it's not game this, game that, and people will still get excited for that franchise that they came from, even though those people aren't involved anymore. You know, and then that happens all the time. I mean, we see it with Dead Space. Right now, yeah, it's like they're remaking it. No one is there anymore. You know, who was there for that game? So, but you know, it doesn't stop it being a good, good remake or anything like that. It's just it feels a bit sad that you know, the company that did make it just and some of the people who have made it, of course, went on to make the Callisto Protocol, which is getting you know, anywhere between like I really like this to kick people kicking the shit out of it. You know? So. With that game, at least, it's a bit more fair. You know, it has its problems. But, you know, here, this is a game that, yeah, it had its issues at launch, got better. I just, yeah, I, 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 it's one of the early ones from this year. I've been fond about it. I think it was my number one at the halfway point of the year. And it's still stuck, despite there being so many games that have come out since that have been really, really good. So, yeah, great stuff. Weird West deserves your time. Out of all the West games that came out this year, it's the best West. <laughs> I was going to say there was, what, three or four different uh, sort of horror uh, Western hybrids that came out yep, this year. But yep. I would say that, yeah, I, to champion some of what you've been saying about Weird West, um, it was the type of game where I almost became one of those people where I was like, I'm not really seeing a ton of weird here. But then when you have that moment where it clicks and it really does open up, the world and, you know, the perspectives that you get to have of the different yeah. characters and how differently they play. Right. I think that that's the big different, the big defining factor of the fact that you get to inhabit multiple characters that are in this very strange world is that, you know, it's not just you're playing from the perspective of whatever, four or five different gunslingers, mm. but you get to inhabit these beings that have drastically different play yeah. styles that even if, you know, the movement style is the same or whatnot, and the aiming is the same, at the end of the day, they all play like fundamentally different classes from the ground up, which I really do love. And it makes me think about, you know, classes in any other number of, uh, you know, isometric kind of top down yeah. strategy RPGs. 
And with this, though, you know, after the patches and things and all the gameplay aspects got refined a little bit more because it did need fine tuning. But, you know, these days, what game doesn't really have to endure something along those lines within the, uh, you know, the first month of its life? I just came back to it recently just to refresh my memory. And it was that type of thing where I was like, oh, man, if this had played the way that it does now back when I originally played it, I would have had zero sort of qualms with, you know, Mm. getting to that weirder point even faster than you do just because of, you know, how responsive it is and how tight those controls end up being. Still wish I had played it on uh, PC instead of console, but at the same time, you know, that didn't take away from the storytelling. What you had mentioned, you know, this blending of the traditional sort of Western framework with the more supernatural horror elements, the way that those two really do seamlessly bleed together. But at the same time, it's a game that has a ton of humor in it, which I think, you know, is always been an aspect of my favorite RPGs, no matter the perspective. Games that are able to tell serious, involving, moving stories, but they don't take themselves too seriously that they are completely devoid of humor. Um, And this is a game where you're meeting all these different people and personalities. You got to have some humor in there. And that's um, something that this game, I think, does really, really well. Um, Even if somebody like me that hasn't read The Dark Tower, but, you know, after listening to countless podcasts and you talking about it, I literally just ordered uh, the first book on Amazon. But it is the type of thing where um, this is a stellar standout, I think, for a Western, which is not a genre I'm necessarily like a huge fan of in media in general. But this is something that, you know, blending horror and a Western, it makes me, uh, you know, want to dive into some more things Mm. just like The Dark Tower. Which is, you know, the greatest compliment you can give it, I'd say. So, Jay, what is your number four? My number four pick is The Night at the Gates of Hell by Jordan King, um, in which the player is thrown into the sorrow-filled shoes of David, a survivor of a zombie apocalypse, who just lost his wife and sets out to escape his infested apartment building in the hopes of finding other survivors. Um, I found this to be a really terrific example of a dev not only building upon their pre-existing skill set with something like the uh, the booty cheek freak um, <laughs> and at the same time you know taking that sort of animation style the humor sensibilities but building upon that with new mechanics with new facets of gameplay yeah. um, and channeling you know a uh, an era of horror that I know is near and dear to your heart, that being, you know, 80s Italian Euro horror. Um, and it's something that, you know, even if somebody like myself that is not as, you know, familiar with perhaps that specific influence, it still comes across in a way that feels very approachable. It feels mm-hmm. very inviting. And it's really capitalizing on the elements of that, that, uh, you know, it's well known for and why it's such a beloved sort of subgenre of horror. Yeah. Um, I was really taken again, as we mentioned previously with the uh, best monsters of the year, the creature design. I really loved all of those zombies, very unique. Some of them humorous, all of them terrifying in their own way. Um, And yeah, you know, taking a survival horror mechanic, which, you know, that gets thrown around a lot. Very rarely, though, is it as executed on as, you know, faithfully as it is here, I found. Um, It was something that, you know, was, I don't, I wouldn't say bare bones, but it's very familiar for anybody that's familiar with survival horror games, but it's done so in a way that it doesn't feel intrusive, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like, oh, this is kind of a a lackluster expanding on a gameplay style or, you know, a, if you will, a toolbox of a developer. Really, you would if I played this 
and wasn't familiar with Jordan King, I would have assumed he had done another survival horror game because it feels that refined yeah. um, in a way that understands the subgenre that it's dabbling in, has a stellar execution of it. And overall, you know, again, building off of a previous project, it's not just about, you know, making an experience bigger, but I want to see a developer go out of their way to try something new while still using what they've done as really like a core foundation. Um, and the Night at the Gates of Hell was certainly uh, that game for me uh, this year. Mm. Yeah, it's a, a very classical survival horror in a lot of ways. You know, you have very limited ammo, you know, slowly moving zombies, you know, getting corridor-based you know, encounters. I suppose the thing that was most refreshing for me about it was that the variety of zombies had nothing to do with types necessarily in in the way that modern games do those types. It's like, think now, pick any modern game, say the last 10, 15 years that has zombies in it. And most of them, if not all of them, have the same bunch of types. You know, it's like you have a brute, you have the spitty <laughs> ones, you have the fast fuckers, you have the sneaky shit. It's the know. left for dead specialists. Yeah, that's it. And that's it. You know, you had those variants, and that's great. But then you are really just pushing out from what zombies are. And you know, I've gone about this before. I don't enjoy that as much as I should because I really do just like slow zombies and the idea of just being caught up in you know your own hubris of that. You know, of thinking, well, there's only a few slow guys I can get out of this, and then you know, what the fuck, I'm caught. You know, it's why <laughs> Vampire Survivors is so good. You know. In, even though it's not zombies necessarily all the time. It's the fact that these enemies aren't that fast, but look how quickly you can just get caught in a pocket, you know, where you, oh, shit, I need to escape. And now I'm covered in all these harder ones that will take a few more hits. And oh my God, and, you know, it puts pressure on you because it, it really taps into that hubris that is you know, such a key asset in any classic zombie story, you know, and it's, and it's here, you know, it, even though there aren't like large swathes of zombies necessarily all the time, it's just, you know, it shows that you can be caught out in situations. And the best thing it does is keep throwing new types at you without it being too different from, you know, they're all undead. They're all fairly, you know, pedestrian in their movement, but they do different things. And I think that is the perfect way to keep it grounded in what, zombies mean to me you know, very selfish as that might be <laughs> but, you know like you mentioned about you know the zombie that is like bent over backwards where you could see its head and that's it you know it throws you off because you are so used to the idea of headshots and waiting for that and suddenly you get these ones that are bent backwards like, oh you know, it takes you out for a moment when you first see one of those say with the ballerina ones you know you see them you know, shit i didn't expect that i maybe expected the nun one you know but that one is something else yeah coming off the back of the, the, the booty creek cheek freak you know which was also this year and also good in its own way you know um this is still really you know humor based and crude and everything about it just screams you know the 80s and that sort of italian vibe you know the taste in it yeah that's obviously not going to work for everybody who's if you aren't um into that kind of humor but you know for me it's like it worked perfectly because it just understands everything that was 
and is about that sort of time period, you know, with zombie things. And I think Jordan, well, I don't need to say think, I know, I know Jordan is, you know, a massive fan of that, you know, stuff. And, you know, and that's why you, you can feel it in every single little bit of this game, you know, where you, you can feel why you can taste the atmosphere of those films. And yeah, it is a, one of the best adaptations of something like it being a direct adaptation like I, yeah. I've ever played. And I think that's usually the way, isn't it? You know, it's like you, even in film, it's like the best video game adaptations are the ones that aren't actually of video games, the ones that take on aspects of it and understand it. And here, this is you know, very true. It's taking on a specific set of cinema and adapting it in a way that is just masterful. And kudos to having someone out there that was willing to do that and had the skill set to make it work. Yeah, I mean, that's the best example of a homage, right? As somebody that those influences are clear, you can, you know, pick those moments out. But at the end of the day, it makes for an experience that is very much its own thing. Um, and, you know, again, for somebody like me that is not as well versed in 80s Italian horror as you are, I'm still able to appreciate and notice, you know, the moments that are paying homage to those influences. And yet, as a package itself, Night at the Gates of Hell is the type of game that, uh, you know, I think is best serving at being a love letter to, you know, again, influences mm-hmm. in genre, but at the same time, it's able to stand on its own and not solely rest on the laurels of, uh, yeah. you know, those uh, subgenres and influences that so many people love. Um, but yeah, before we move on to our next Best Of Award, we're going to take a quick break. and When we come back, we will dive into that and the rest of our picks for the year. And we are back from our break, and we're going to dive right into best visual style of the year. Neil, what was your pick for this one? Two picks. Um, first one, one on the list, one not on the list. Um, the one not on the list is Silt, um, because all of that is hand-drawn, black and white as it is. It's, you know, it's very easy to label it just you know another sort of limbo sort of in size style game because of that sort of monochrome edge to it but the detail of everything that is in that game you know by you know an artist so it's lovely to see that and see just the imagination and of each big monster you come across in that game you know it's like this undersea biomechanical world and you are this unnamed diver that's going through it, and the stuff you meet along the way is just phenomenal. You know, like I think I explained this. Um, we did the halfway point sort of game of the year stuff. You know, when I put it on the list, then is that you know there, there is this thing that looks like a tree underwater, you know, with things that look like birds in it, and it's like just. The weird thing of seeing a tree underwater with things that look like birds, like that, it, you know, and the fact that it then turns out to be a giant monster of the deep, you know, that once it goes up, you know, once you've done what you need to do, it rises and you have to defeat it. And yeah, I just think the art style just made a lot of that game stick in the memory a long, long time, you know, for me. It's great. But um, in terms of the game's the other games i would say norco is the game that, to me has just been stuck in my brain in so many ways yeah you know, from the soundtrack to the writing to the the look 
Yeah, the look is the most important thing. And I think it's just, it takes that point and click adventure style thing. It's rudimentary, but it just turns simple human characters and things into something really disturbing and odd. And it just has a whole vibe and atmosphere that I just cannot shake. And yeah, it is fantastic the way that game looks. Yeah, Norco is one of my, uh, hopefully on my holiday back catalog that I'll be tackling because not only, you know, hearing your praise for the game, but also just what I've been reading about it. Uh, it seems right at my alley and just, you know, even from the, you know, the stills on Steam or whatever, mm. that art style comes through in a way that uh, game pass really game. does. So, oh, there we go. There also go. Game Pass game. So I'll definitely be uh, adding that to the old uh, back catalog, which <laughs> that'll be closer to the top of my back catalog. <laughs> Granted, uh, the number of stuff I keep adding on a weekly basis. But yeah, Norco <laughs> is absolutely one that I will be checking out. Uh, sooner rather than later but uh, for my best visual style it was going to be Signalis which is a game that we're going to of course dive into in a little more depth later but I'll just say I'm so blown away by not only the way that that game looks but also the playing with perspectives and I talked about a little bit in an episode of the inventory the fact that you know you do have this top-down you know isometric kind of look to it but at the same time, you know, you have these first person segments. You also have these segments of cutscenes that are very kind of traditional anime style, I guess. I'm not well versed in anime, but simplistic terms, I'll say it has these anime style cutscenes, but there is this gritty sci fi horror edge to everything that's drawn there. Um, and just a really good directorial sensibility with how those cutscenes play out um, that really do, you know, make for something that not just what you're looking at being unnerving, but overall the sense of unknowing and the sort of cosmic elements to that game, uh, which we will be diving into very, very shortly. But enough about that. Let's dive into your number three pick. My number three pick is, guess what? Signalis. (laughs) Well, we're going to have to... uh, put a pin in that and come back to it later okay so jay what's your number three pick <laughs> my number three pick is warhammer Forty Thousand dark tide by fat shark okay um, this is of course a game that we talked about for the inventory um, this is a squad based co-op class-based first person shooter where up to four players embark on missions in the name of the emperor to tear through hordes of heretics in the process they're going to gain resources and xp to level up one of four classes that have a variety of abilities and weapons at their disposal. Um, this is a game that, you know, we were fortunate enough to be getting beta access from the devs. We covered it for the inventory and I was like, you know, this is a game I'll play periodically, but I'm not a huge multiplayer guy. I think I'm on record at this point <laughs> of saying that uh, I'm not the biggest multiplayer uh, fan. And yet I've probably put about 20 hours into this. And of course it's had the full release since we covered it for the inventory. Yeah. And this is a game that, you know, I think first and foremost has a fantastic combat loop mechanic. Um, The combat has weight to it. It's this great balance of melee and ranged combat. Each of them has their own sort of place in the ebb and flow of how engagements and combat happen. You really can't ignore one over the other. There's benefits for certain types of encounters of which will benefit more. In terms of, you know, dealing damage or supporting your squad, playing those roles between those four class types. Um, and it's something that, you know, I kind of thought like, eh, I'll probably get tired of this after a few matches. 
I might only play one or two at a time and I end up playing, you know, probably four matches yeah. if I sit down to play it because it has that meaty sort of grind to melee combat, um, but at the same time has that satisfying sort of headshot quality of ranged combat. Yeah. Uh, getting to really pump more time into it and, you know, boost those classes and get to unlock not only new abilities, new buffs, new weapons. There's so many new varieties to diving into um, the harder difficulties as well, right? Obviously, when we covered it for the inventory, I was, you know, playing it from the easiest <laughs> sort of difficulty because I kind of wanted to get accustomed to all the aspects of it. Now having more time with it, though, and diving into the more difficult settings, that unlocks a whole new facet of those missions. It's not just that you know, enemies get harder, but they're more numerous mm -hmm. and you encounter new types of enemies that are far stronger, but also it's the ways in which you have to really, you know, rely on your squad even more, not just, you know, know your role, but it's a proximity effect too. Yeah. You know, if you kind of run off away from somebody, not only are you, you know, isolating yourself and if you get jumped by a hound or something that kind of restricts your movement, not only are you going to be, you know, solo on an island, basically away from your squad, but the squad's resistance to different things differs when you're out of proximity. Yeah. Um, so there is that kind of element to, you know, playing as a team and really emphasizing teamwork um, in a way other than just like, yeah, it would be great if everybody could, you know, play their prescribed roles, if you will. Um, I think also something I wasn't able to appreciate initially was the level of detail in the environments. Mm. You know, not only does this game look gorgeous on, you know, fairly reserved graphical settings but the level of detail in each of the different maps and worlds that you're going to be visiting and you know of course with the full release there's a better variety of not only missions but also environments i'm not the biggest warhammer 40k guy in terms of like knowing the lore or anything like that but it's a world that in these maps and their detail you get a true sense of you know what this realm of sci-fi horror is really like mm. um, you can you know you've got this brutalist sort of architecture to everything you have this kind of like dialogue periodically not only between the classes but between people at hq and again it's not going to be something that's like oh this is really great storytelling or something but it, it at least informs you about the environments and about the overall sort of world of warhammer 40k yeah in a way that i don't attribute to a lot of these types of squad based games typically when i play something like this i'm like okay I'm running through another factory. I'm running through another sewer. There's definitely factories and there's definitely sewers in this, <laughs> but they go out of their way, I feel, to at least give you a bit of lore and a bit of set dressing for the importance of what you're doing, what goes on in these environments and those things. And it gives you context for your actions, not saying it's going to be the deepest or even have much variety to the type of uh, flavor text and whatnot, but it's appreciated. I appreciate it a lot. Um, just because it helps to flesh things out makes me a little more invested in Warhammer in a way where I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll play some other Warhammer games and learn more about this world or this universe. Um, and I'm just appreciative of that because I think about my time with something like Back for Blood or Left for Dead and, you know, not taking those to task for their lack of storytelling. But at the same time, when you're running through the same environments over and over, it's nice to be able to stop once in a while and enjoy the set dressing, uh, you know, to pick up on little story bits here and there. So, yeah, this was a game that uh, shockingly I have been unable to uh, quit and I don't think I'll be quitting it anytime soon. Well, yeah, given your um, you know, point of view when it comes to these kind of games, that is strong praise indeed, I think, that they managed to do that for you. I mean, 
for me, it, I think it's very good. I think it does what it does really well. And I think the best Warhammer games are the ones that manage to resonate beyond the fandom and, and have something deeper. And, you know, Vermintide and Vermintide 2 were very much the same in that regard, you know, whether they took the traditional Warhammer sort of approach and uh, did it. Um, you know, for me, it's a case of like, well, if I'm going to play multiplayer games like this, I have a handful of ones I will play. And to get in that exclusive club is very difficult. <laughs> so, <at this point. laughs> and at the minute, that club is full. So you know, as much as I played a bit, a fair bit of it when we're doing the uh, inventory, you know, I haven't really been able to go back to it since. Um, but yeah, it's one of those I'm sure I will come back to at some point because uh, I like it a strong multiplayer game and uh, it has something about it and I think the level of detail is um, definitely a great thing to bring up because it really does just sort of enrich those levels with something special I think so yeah it's a very good game and I suppose that's the thing with the choosing a top 10 this year it's just like a very good game can miss out very easily yeah, because uh, you have so many very good games. <laughs> I'll finish by saying that it also has a terrific score by a uh, composer, Jesper KYD. Uh, definitely, you know, kicks in at the right moments when you're kind of just in the early throes of exploring yeah. an environment. It is this sort of like signature, almost sort of angelic, I don't know, gospel-esque nature of what uh, Warhammer's sort of like holier-than-thou approach to a world is but then it kicks in with this synth sort of i hesitate to say house music vibes once the action really picks up but it does match the intensity of that um those types of engagements really really well yeah kid um to say kid did the uh early assassin's creed games and i think oh. the early hitman's oh. actually as well so you know he's he's got a good range for that sort of uh choral orchestral sort of uh vibe so yeah he, he's definitely got that nailed down i'll say also in terms of like an ai director you know thinking about something like left for dead where it was like oh this is when i'm gonna they're gonna throw a specialist at you to kind of throw you off your Mm -hmm. game um where i found games like that and back for blood overly relied on that where you know you're just facing specialists constantly a game like this does a really great job of having more types of specialists but using them in a way that feels a little more natural and i never have a moment where i'm like Okay, I like I get it. Like you can't keep throwing trappers at me every thirty seconds because that becomes a headache. Then we're just like restricting the entire squad. With this, there's different tiers of specialists, and you know you even get these mini boss encounters at random intervals sometimes yeah. before the main sort of like last stand moment before an X vac. So there is this quality to the flow of engagements that is really unpredictable, and it's done so in a way that it feels as if you never kind of hit that wall where it's like, oh, this is this is just unfair for the sake of being unfair or some kind of unnatural difficulty spike. Um, really, if anything, it emphasizes why you can't do that lone run and gun kind of thing in this uh, style of game. Uh, but yeah, this was a game that uh, I literally can't put down. And probably as soon as we're done recording this, <laughs> I will uh, I will be diving back in for a few more runs. That's fair enough. Um, I, I can't say what I'm going to play. Yeah, it's... Um... <laughs> it, it's whatever the mood takes me um, yeah. one thing that was quite interesting about what Dark Tide does in terms of that um, sort of communicating uh, how the game works you know, based on your play style 
is that earlier in the year we had the anacrusis which had that mm. to a degree and it was really interesting in that respect but the game was early access and you know, there were a lot of parts of it that were very you know, rough and ready and mm. tacked on and you could see it doing well if it got past that but uh, yeah it, it's not reached this stage and that that's a problem for that game which is a shame because I, I think it deserved to get that second chance but I think putting putting that kind of game on Game Pass in early access preview bad idea because uh, console gamers just do not get that stuff at all and, and yeah, it, it just does not work but hey it is what it is so we are done with the number threes. Before we dive into your number two, though, we're going to do another cat- best mm-hmm. of category, which is going to be best new old game. Mm-hmm. So, Neil, for you, what was your best new old game? Project Zomboid. 100%. Yeah, yeah. The only reason I made this damn category was to have <laughs> Project Zomboid in here somewhere. Because, God damn it, you know, once we're done and I'm done with all the work this year and I have nights free to myself where I don't have to get up in the morning and get the kids to school or any of that and I can just drink and play games at my leisure in the evening I'm going back to Project Zomboid and doing that for hours on end just meaningless meaningless survival for hours on end because it is just such a fantastic encapsulation of what I used to love about PC gaming you know the idea of just anything could just fuck you up in a minute and you have no choice in the matter and yeah it it goes back to what i was saying about um night at the gates of hell you know it's like i love games that do zombies like they should be because it takes a real skill to make slow zombies work as a threat you know yeah even the comedy levels of uh, violence you get to in something like dead rising the game still understands that you know you can still be swarmed if you are cocky and you take it too far and here it's like the most extreme example is like no you're no superhero you know you can't fucking throw a, a fridge at someone and uh, a zombie <laughs> and be okay you can't just drink a gallon of juice and be okay and it's like it, it is hardcore simulation no you ran too far in heavy clothing and now you're fucking sweating and you know you're you're dehydrated, you know, it's like, but the only reason you're running and sweating is because you fucked up back at the house and you had to escape and the only way to escape was through the forest and you had to run for ages. It's just the anecdotes that come out of this game are just ridiculous. You know, I, I'm so, so fond of this. And, you know, I was saying to you last week before we started the last episode, I had to double check that it hadn't made some sort of milestone this year that made it um, viable because, you know, it would have been on the list. Absolutely. You know, the fact is it's been an early access and still is for you know nine years going on 10. So it, it's fine. It just happened to have a very big update this year that, that uh, made it um, newsworthy and certainly made it something that I wanted to play the minute I saw it. Yeah. But yeah, it's one of those, because it's on PC and to play on PC, I have to be doing something particular. It's either something short or something because I have to work or, and that's it. Yeah, to, to play something for pleasure these days is very difficult uh, because it revolves around sitting at the table 
yeah, and the table's being used for so many things in a day and distractions and games like that just would not work. Yeah, it's saying I have to play in the dead of night knowing no one's going to come down and moan at me because whatever the fuck they want. Yeah, it's like uh, with kids in the house, that could be anything. Yeah, I was saying to you before we started this, you know, my daughter was, came down just before we recorded to sort of tell me that her door was creaking. Yeah, and that that was terrible. The, the same daughter that told me that only the day before that she wanted to play Grand Theft Auto because she thinks murder is fun. Uh, then telling me she's scared because her door is creaking. So yeah, it's like that's good for you in a nutshell. So, <laughs> but yes, Project Zomboid really just makes zombies scary again because you really, really feel the moment. You know that anything could just go wrong. You, know, you can feel confident, cocky. I got the situation. I found this building. It's got all these supplies. I can sleep here. I'll be safe here. And then you get a little bit too curious, go to the wrong place, and everything goes to shit at the last minute and changes your plans. And I love that. It's like, no matter how smart and methodical you are, something like that could happen. And then you throw other people that could just be wandering around in that mix. Just... It's everything I ever wanted in a zombie game, you know, and I'm just so in love with it. So, yeah, it had to be here in some way, shape or form uh, this year. And this category is exactly why. So anyway, what about you? (laughs) Well, I'll just say, you know, you introduced me to Project Zomboid, which was not even on my radar when uh, you brought it up and we're like, oh, yeah, we should totally cover this for the show. And I'll say that game... The, the anecdotes that you get out of that game are better, I find, than any type of storytelling that could be mm. in any piece of zombie media. Uh, you know, learning by, you know, going through the pains of trying to survive in that world, it does a great job of, you know, capturing the mundane aspects of what a zombie apocalypse would be, right? Especially yeah. with those roamer style zombies. You don't have the runners uh, that, you know, would probably kill us all in about 30 seconds. But the idea that, you know, if you were to die in a zombie apocalypse, even if you think you're the smartest person at the end of the day, you're probably going to be done in by, you know, the most haphazard of, uh, you know, yeah. actions, something like breaking a window and then climbing through it. And, oh, you just severed an artery. And now if you don't get bandages, you're going to bleed out in a department store or just getting a fever and you don't have medication. And now you get to die in a ball in a bed somewhere that you're holding up. Or dehydration or starvation or whatever. Yeah, Like it, it's a constant marvel in that regard that you just cannot die in the most embarrassing ways died of starvation because you couldn't find a can opener yeah or dying of starvation or thirst because you had to run for a long time and you never found anywhere else to go it's like love it that it it just it it, i love that it feels like those individual moments that you just don't get in an actual like fixated story You, you you get these things that happen that don't normally happen in a scripted story because they wouldn't, and it wouldn't really pursue the story properly. And I love the idea that you, that story is told and that you can then go back to that same map and find the character that died, you know, mm. and, and come back to them. Same with, weird, you know, like I was saying, with weird, weird West, that you can you know, sort of go back to characters you've had, you know, but here it's like, you know, if you're going back to a character you had, they're dead, and you, you, you know what loot they had on them, so maybe, is it worth going after them? It depends what situation you left them in. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just 
discovering places and how expansive it is and the fact that you, you can go into the forest and think, oh, I'll just go into there a bit and uh, walk off to the next place. And the forests are fucking huge. You know? <laughs> yeah. No game other than this would I tolerate walking for a forest for 30 fucking minutes, you know, and not find anything and die at the end of it. You know, I would feel angry and frustrated at that game. This game, it, like I said, classic PC stuff. I'm applauding it. Love it. It's my shit entirely. But that's a really, really fucking long answer. We still haven't got to yours. <laughs> Well, my uh, best new old game would be GTFO, uh, which is, you know, again, going against um, <laughs> the grain of my, you know, horror playing of uh, not being the biggest multiplayer guy. At the same time, though, GTFO has a really fantastic balance, mm. I think, of or perhaps maybe it's not a balance, but it is an emphasis on stealth that still does have its moments of, you know, adrenaline pumping firefights against these yes. hordes of pretty unique monsters i find um overall it's it has this aesthetic of a world that i really love and you know it's one that even if the game does not have a great deal of story behind it right it's about prisoners that are subjected to you know being woken out of cryo sleep and they have to go investigate these monster infilled underground labyrinths Um, but there's just something about the world that is has similarities to other types of sci-fi horror things but at the same time are wholly original this idea that, you know, there is such an emphasis on stealth, but then, you know, the action is reserved for these very particular moments that really do, you know, allow the player to kind of unleash and unload with this varied uh, arsenal of not only firearms that some of them are traditional, some of them have this kind of weird cyberpunk twist to them, but at the same time, they have this gear that uh, is more strategic, some of it's offensive, some of it's defensive, but it just makes for this experience that, you know, I would love to have a single player game in this world, but at the same time, you know, playing with a group of friends, I can't remember a multiplayer experience that had such highs, but at the same time, such lows when you get that random person that's like, oh, I'm just going <laughs> to pop off in these sections. It's kind of like in uh, Back for Blood or Left for Dead, you know, those moments where you encounter a witch, right? And it's like everybody has to be on the same page. Otherwise, that could be the end of our run. Now imagine you run into dozens of enemies that if you wake them up, it could throw off your entire run. Um, But at the same time, you know, it is that type of experience that even if somebody fucks up and the run gets brought to an end sooner rather than later, you've probably learned a great deal about the fundamentals of the game. And you are going to have those anecdotes more often than not where, you know, you just got to the final door and, you know, you got down to your last few bullets Mm -hmm. and then... It can either go one of two ways. And, you know, I have a number of uh, of woes, but also uh, <laughs> success stories that, you know, I'm grateful for those moments, you know, whether or not I have more losses than wins in that. At the same time, though, it is this really beautiful merger of horror and teamwork um, that I've, you know, returned to not as much as I would like now that, I, you know, I've got uh, Dark Tide <laughs> booted up constantly. But at the same time, it's a game that... Uh, I would love to run, you know, with if we ever find a night where we can, you know, get on the same schedule, it would be the type of thing where, you know, try to recruit you. I know I'm going to end up playing with uh, Aaron at some point yeah. as well. He's reached out and wanted to play. But uh, yeah, I, a close uh, second for me for this year would have been uh, Hunt, which Aaron, you know, introduced me to. Yeah. Obviously, you were familiar with it, but, you know, some similarities in terms of the difficulty curve, but at the same time, you know, more of an emphasis on teamwork 
So if anything, it makes it a little more approachable for a newbie like me, you know, get to squat up with some vets and then they get to kind of teach me the ropes yeah. or I get to, you know, learn by watching and whatnot. I and mean, uh, yeah. In terms of games that have influenced other games, again, that, that hunt is, I'm playing a lot of Warzone's, yeah, Call of Duty Warzone 2.0's uh, DMZ mode because it is basically Hunt, but in the Call of Duty format now at the minute because it works quite well. Uh, bigger maps, you know, you, like you still get, you know, they do all the same ideas, you know, but instead of monsters, you are taking out targets and getting loot and whatever. Um, not perfect and still in beta, but it, it's great. But Hunt, Hunt just continues to be great whatever i i just think the vibe of that game is just magical and crytek you know a developer that has got a lot of shit over the years for you know making games that punish pcs but still um you know don't maybe uh make the best things all the same this is the game that just is perfect you know it's it feels like the passion project you know you know, you know when uh, Benson and Moorhead talk about you know they did Moon Knight. Uh, that that's the the big budget thing that then goes and funds something like something in the dirt. You know, and here it is like the Crisis Games fund something like Hunt Showdown. So and uh, that that's great. Uh, we can have a game like that, and it just is endlessly magical. We've talked about it this year, so yeah, but it, it is just endlessly great fun and for the reasons that you will absolutely have to go into by listening to the episode we did on it. I think that uh, this has definitely been a year where I'm turning around on, on multiplayer stuff. There I'm, you go. I'm being more open-minded and I'm being uh, handsomely rewarded for it. it yeah, I, and for me, it's a case of like, uh, over the last few years, it's been, I can't do multiplayer. You know, um, first it was internet not being great. Now, uh, then it was... Um, children being chronically ill every fucking time you want to do it and now you know those two things are gone and i'm able to accept more multiplayer things and it showed from the off with you know, being able to play projects of void and um really getting back into hunt again and like i said warzone's dmz so yeah it, it, it's definitely a good time to be into multiplayer horror Absolutely. But uh, let's dive into your number two pick for the year. See, I just changed this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I was just thinking, looking through when we we're talking about games, I'm thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift this around. So you've already mentioned this game uh, in the first episode. Uh, it was your number seven. It is my number two. It's Immortality by her half mermaid. So. Immortality is basically being the guy that has to piece together three lost movies of an actress that went missing, you know, Marissa Marcel. And you are doing that by just sort of piecing scenes together, you know, clicking on things in the scenes and like connecting the dots and finding more scenes. Um, very simple in principle, you know, as much as as it is an evolution of what Sam Barlow and Half Moon Maid have done before, with stuff like telling lies, it is also the most refined version of that. But it works artistically with the, with this game. Um, so yeah, you are uncovering not only these films and restoring them, so to speak, 
to their former glory but you are also finding this mystery within about what happened to this actress who did three films that were all buried you know why why were they buried what what was so impactful that it had to be buried and then you learn more and more and you know um if you've watched stuff like the film censor yeah you will get where this goes in some ways um yeah, you are basically playing the role of that, you know, where you are just sort of pouring over the footage and organically discovering things you know, about these films. And it adds a supernatural element, you know, at a point, you know, where you could argue, oh, why is this a horror game? People might say, you know, when they initially play it, it's like, and it just slowly reveals itself. You know, it's no surprise there is a great involvement with a lot of people who worked on stuff with David Lynch, you know. And so in terms of how things turn out, in terms of the music and whatever, you know, and it's just phenomenal how you get from point A to point B with this thing. And, you know, it is such a wild ride and everyone's ride can be very different. And yeah, it genuinely has disturbing, scary moments, you know, which is, for something that isn't really sold as a horror thing, you know, I know that early on, you know, when Sam Barlow was talking about this game, he was very adamant that, you know, it had horror elements and horror vibes, you know, he comes from that, he's done that, you know, he's done a Silent Hill game himself, but all the same, you wouldn't notice it in the same way we were talking about weird west earlier you know and how the weird doesn't show up immediately and you can see how that might piss people off and this is even harder in that regard because you can go through this for a long time and not really see the disturbing weird stuff if you went about it in a certain way which i don't know that to me that's more exciting Something that you don't crack unless you have a certain mindset is thrilling. thrilling. You know, to me, I, I really just love and adore where it goes in that regard. That you, you would have to have the intuition to find it. And I, yeah, maybe it's a flaw that some people might find that too early in it not impact well some people not, might not find it at all before they get bored and don't find it but for the sweet spot of people who just know what kind of understand film which you know what this game really is about it's it's as much about film as it is about video game logic and when you knock those things together oof boy does it work doesn't it just bloody work? It is just phenomenal. You know, Sam Barlow's games have been good personally, I think, you know, in the past. But this, this is another level. You know, absolutely. Just the ambition on display here. And I am always going to go to bat for games that you know, really just go for ambition. And this is, you know, big budget ambition for what it is. And the kind of game it is. And to put this in context, you think of the games that really get the funding for ambition, you know, of any kind. 
there aren't many. You know, it's like most games follow of that budget or big budgets will get a certain remit and they will follow certain paths. This does not feel like that, you know. And you know, I can see where the compromises were made. You know, you know, do a deal with Netflix to be on their game service, blah blah blah, stuff like that. Fine, great. You know, people want if people discover it through there, it's almost it's almost a perfect place for it to be. It's just mesmerizing, you know. I, I just did not expect it to be the game it was. And yeah, you know, when we talked about it early in, in the year, you know, with an episode dedicated to this, you know, when you talked about it in the preview stage, um, I never expected it to be this thing that was just outstanding on every level, you know, it's like. And, you know, like I said back then, I am absolutely 100% happy that I never played the demo version because I, I think that would have soured so much for me because I, you are playing out the, your own personal movie in this game. You are the person putting all this together. And as a result, you are discovering the secrets within and that is your own personal story. Oh, it's it's a perfect way of doing it. You know, it's like the way it transcends mediums is just undeniable and unbelievable to me. Yeah, and that is all I'm going to say on it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says, flipping over his 60th page. It's like, but, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll say this. You know, it was my number seven. I still consider this to probably be one of the strongest games of like the last decade and i say that pretty confidently because of something you just mentioned which is the fact of the matter is this game has such a polish Mm. and the fact that it takes such a massive swing in transcending types of media and really does blend film and interactive games in a way that you know we've only kind of dreamed of we've only ever had inklings of with other fmv games right this really does take it to a new level and i would say it does what so many games that have tried to be these kind of like crime investiga- investigatory uh, experiences have could only ever dream of, mm-hmm. right? And I think that even if something like that match cut system maybe isn't as refined as it could have been, overall, though, the way in which you interact with sections of film, not only of clips from the movie, but supplemental materials and a variety of supplemental materials. I mean, I didn't get to a supernatural part of this game for the first 90 minutes, maybe. And that's even being kind of generous. Mm-hmm. And that's also why it was part of my, it was my scariest scene or moments of the year when I have that realization of like, oh, this is what we're getting to. You know, my the, the way I was thinking about this game and how you could incorporate horror was very linear. And so the fact that they're able to go against the grain of what my expectation and, you know, I think it's an expectation other people probably had, right? You stumble upon a fragment of a clip where you catch an interaction between two people or you see a movement or somebody takes an item that ends up being at a crime scene later. Kind of like a traditional view of what a crime would be when you're analyzing film. And the fact that this game goes where it goes, which we will not be discussing here because it really is that amazing of a revelation and that shocking and terrifying of a revelation at a certain point. um, It makes for something that, again, I'm so thankful that I did not have to review this game because I feel like not only would that three-fourths of the review be trying to describe, you know, the mechanics of it, but also how do you discuss in depth about what is so special about the story that's here 
without, you know, revealing anything about it, which really is genuinely shocking in a way that so few stories and games are. Um, and I think that, you know, it's clear I hadn't played any of uh, Barlow's other games before, but to hear that this is the most refined version, I mean, I would say that that is a perfect way to describe it because the fact that they dabble between, I think it's what, 30 years across all three of those films and the level of polish and detail that is given to each of those time periods, the distinctions between them, whether it's in performances, style, aesthetic, you know, when I talked with uh, Nanita Desai about the soundtracks, right? Having to do a soundtrack that spans three different eras of music and still allowing for the game to not really feel disjointed or sort of like just at odds with any one part, but feeling like this kind of harmonious celebration of games, but also film and the, you know, music that goes along with those periods. Um, It made for something that I'd never experienced in games before. And especially in the FMV field of games, I don't know how you even would compare this to anything that came before it, because it is just so in a league of its own in that regard. Yeah. And, you know, standout here is Manon Gage as the Marissa Marcel character. 100%. Yeah, the beauty of something like this is getting unknowns in to star in it because then you you don't have any baggage, you don't have any of this. Is this real? Isn't this real? Sort of thing. And early on, that you know, before the game came out, there was this air of this thing where you were like, "Is this really free films? You know, that they found out nowhere, or is not." You know, once you actually play it, it becomes more apparent that, you know, no, no it's not, is, you know, because the time gap and all the different things they do. With it. But I love the uncertainty. You, know, you can just get people in there thinking like that. You know, it's a great reason why stuff like The Blair Witch Project is one of my favorite films, because I love the, the idea of just creating fact and fiction being in a way that is almost one-to-one you know and which is you know increasingly difficult in this day and age where we have access to everything and you you can fact check all these things doesn't work for everyone clearly but you know it's still there yeah, and you can look at this and go well of course yes it was a fabrication and all that but in the moment you are just so invested in what it's doing that you don't care it's just this mystery to be solved and you are not a traditional detective you are a detective in the realms of cinema you know and that in itself to to me especially just felt really exciting for someone who you know is not like educated professionally in terms of cinema but uh, all games but you know has such a love for both it it was the best role play to really feel like you were someone who really mattered and really counted in in finding out what was going on in this story yeah it's just a remarkable game to me I, i i'm just blown away by it and you know it's my only apology is that I shifted it off my number one this late in the day. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at the same day, time, you you will understand why. 
How about you? What's your number two? My number two is one that I actually talked about at the halfway point of the year, and it's one that I have uh, returned to periodically throughout the year, and I've seen a little more polish in it and a little more refining, and also, you know, given me enough time to, uh, you know, really grasp just how strange of a concept of a game it is, how weird of a world it is, but, you know, my appreciation for it has grown even more so, and that would be Golden Light by Golden developer Light. Mr. Pink. Oh, yes. This was, uh, you know, picks up during the idyllic picnic that a player is having with their girlfriend who is suddenly sucked into a meat vortex <laughs> and it's up to the player to follow her into the world of the gut. Uh, the gut is best described as a smorgasbord of meat, metal and unfiltered lunacy. Uh, if that doesn't simplify things for you, don't worry. I have periodically returned over the course of the year, uh, and even I still struggle to, you know, accurately describe it because it is that strange. But uh, yeah, this game is a procedural dark comedy horror game with roguelike elements in which the player must find keys to proceed to the next floor of this, you know, never-ending, seemingly meat world. Uh, the world is, of course, filled with horrific monsters. Uh, some of them that mimic objects within the environment, so they're kind of hidden throughout these worlds and you really do have to you know have a light foot in how you proceed throughout the world uh, to give you guys a sense of what gameplay is like first person you dual wield in one hand you're going to have weapons the weapons can be as simple as a fire axe they can also be as strange as a knife that has a meat handle with eyes in it that when you strike up <laughs> when you strike items or objects uh, they are engulfed in flames in the other hand you will wield Items that uh, can either be thrown for great effect or be eaten for terrible effects and vice versa. And it is this game that is wholly original. I have literally never played anything like this before. It very much is in the vein of some games that we've played in the sense of like, oh, you can describe it as being this acid trip aesthetic, kind of like a Cruelty Squad, or even talk about like this adult humor sensibility to humor something along the lines of um, like even go fly a kite in some regards, right? Sort of pairing the absurdist with um, this sort of like supernatural sensibility. Yeah. And at the same time, it has this brutally difficult kind of curve to it that I would attribute to almost like a souls game in some regards, because, you know, there's a lot of experimentation, not only in how you traverse environments, but also how you interact with items quite literally you can eat every single item that you pick up whether it's a weapon or whether it's something that's throwable and you don't learn what those effects are until you actually consume it in a current run which you know can either yield uh glorious results or disastrous results <laughs> for a specific run but in that you know you really do get a better grasp on the fundamentals of this game the principles of the world and how you should you know progress or progress with uh, a certain level of caution. Um, I, you know, have come back to this game throughout the entire year. And it's a game that, you know, the more time I've had away from it and then return to it, yeah. I've had a better understanding just of, you know, how you progress through this game. Um, you really do benefit from just experimenting as much as possible and can't be afraid to have to restart a run or to, you know, really do revel in that, uh, in that failure of a run because something is gained from it. And uh, yeah, this is a game that I have, to be fair, I haven't touched the multiplayer aspect because uh, I'm still trying to grow, still trying to master that single player aspect of it. But it is the type of game that the more I revisit the gut, 
the more my appreciation for its world grows and just how confident it is in being unlike anything out else out there and even roguelikes, yeah. right? I think that it's something that even in those kind of like parameters, it pushes those boundaries in a way that just not only fits in terms of the sort of loose narrative or the parameters of the world of the gut, but at the same time, you know, as frustrated as you will be, it's never from a place of like, oh, this is broken or this doesn't make sense because again, in experimentation, most things will be revealed. Yes. Um, and I find that to be an incredibly rewarding experience. One that, you know, it really does push you to break out of your comfort zone and how you would play games either like this or just games in general. Um, and that's the quality of game development that I am uh, very thankful for. And I think that it kind of broadens my horizons, perhaps, to how I play all games, but also, you know, specifically horror games such as this. Yeah, you're not wrong. You know, I haven't played a lot of this. You know, after you recommended it, I you know, got it and got into it for a little bit. But, you know, the job being what it is, you know, you are on to the next thing before you really get into anything. But it has a level of absurdism that, that just is f fun and hilarious to me. You know, the, the fact that you have a fucking talking bike and that, you know, yeah. <laughs> inside that, yeah. It, it makes for, you know, in the wrong game, that could just be an aside. And I think of very recently uh, High on Life, which is a mm. game that is constantly constantly going for a joke you know like the, it, it goes for the shotgun approach of jokes which is like if i shoot 30 jokes at you one might hit you, you know, sort of thing <laughs> like that which is great yeah but it, when it if you uh, get hit by six of them but you know at the same time mm. you might feel fatally wounded by laughing at any of them <laughs> that that approach to humor too is almost like having to endure an open mic from somebody that's never done comedy before yeah, right? Where yeah it's just yeah, this it. This fucking spew of just this word salad and you hope that, you know, a fourth <laughs> of what's said will really land in a way that's meaningful. Whereas when you let the world and the absurdity of it, you know, do a lot of the heavy lifting, but the mechanics themselves are sound. And, you know, that's a quality of this game that I think really does separate it yeah. from other styles of absurdist humor, right? Is that the mechanics themselves are solid to the degree Absolutely. that it doesn't feel like there's any real like weak foundation in terms of like, oh, it's overly relying on the fact that this is ridiculous or the humor or the jokes that are being made. But when the mechanics are that sound, if anything, it just really does bolster the entire thing. Whereas something like High on Life, which granted, I've played three hours of that. I don't think that game is particularly fun to play. But at the same time, like it's this thing where it's like, yeah, the dialogue is kind of 50-50 for me. The gameplay is 50-50 for me. So I might play a little bit more of this, yeah. but I'm definitely not returning to that game with the frequency with which I would play something like this. Granted, yeah. it's not a fair one-to-one -one comparison. One's no, 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 procedurally but generated, but you get what I'm saying. No, I, I think uh, the key thing to take away there is that, um, like I said, it's like trying to form jokes in a game is as hard as it is to form horror in a game. You know, is you need to do a certain structure to make it work and you know i'm reviewing high on life for instance and one of the things i'm going to point out is that that you know in much the same way that a horror movie that relies too much on jump scares will ultimately just be its own downfall 
because it's like it won't work because you have nef- left no room for any sort of suspense or build up. It's like high on life is like that where you are just constantly just getting joke after joke after joke. No doubt that some can be funny, but at the same time, if they were a bit more restrained, you might just get something that's a bit more consistently funny. And that's a game where you can turn down, you know, the amount of talk going on in the game, and it still feels like too much. <laughs> you know, yeah, here that was my experience as well. Yeah, and here there's it's confidence in the material beyond mm. like the words. You know, it just it's situational amusement where you don't have to commentate on why something is funny. You know, it's like you don't have to explain why something is funny or even in an ironic way. And that's important. You know, I, I think you need to have that level of comedy in something if you're going to be a funny game where you aren't just, here's a pop culture reference, here's another pop culture reference. And in between that, we're going to pepper every single line of dialogue with some kind of joke that, you might like might not like it's like no no no. you can space it out not everything has to be funny yeah it's like but you can leave just enough funny in something where it will be fucking hilarious to people if not everyone else but it doesn't affect people who don't find it funny because it, it will go over the heads you know and that's brilliant that's what you want you want something that will work on levels not on this is obvious this is a joke and I don't accept it, sort of thing. You know, that doesn't really apply to the skit. So yeah, I, I think it does a great job in that regard. Yeah, and it's definitely one that uh, people should be going into with an open mind. But I think, yeah, I'm fairly confident in saying that it's unlike anything you've played before. And I hope that's enough to get uh, some people to dive into Golden Light to check that out. Yeah. So we are so close now. We are <laughs> the final games. You know. Yeah. You know, given what we haven't talked about, uh, that kind of gives away one person's game of the year. (laughs) Um, But all the same, we have a bunch of things we haven't been able to add to this list and anguished over because we couldn't put them in. Let's go with that. Jay, as much as we've been doing it the way around, this time I'm going to let you go first. Oh, how kind of you. Um... (laughs) Well, you know, charity. It begins at home. (laughs) My honorable mentions for this year were, you know, two that we've discussed heavily on Horror Bites, but granted, as they were demos, it didn't necessarily feel right to include them here for my games of the year. That being The River Runs Through Us, Mm -hmm. which is a demo again, which you guys can check out on Itch.io, which literally cannot wait for not only perhaps another demo or just the final release in general, um, but also 10 Dead Doves, which again, we've covered extensively here, um, is another that literally could not wait to get another uh, glimpse at that and hopefully sooner rather than later. But some other games that really did stand out to me this year that uh, I've spent quite a lot of time with, one would be Evil Dead the Game, which again is one of those multiplayer games that opened and broadened my horizons, but also, you know, getting to have uh, Brandon Trushon to talk about just why not only is this a great example of like asymmetrical horror multiplayer games, but at the same time, you know, showing how it differs from others within that same space and really does excel in a way that maybe 
eludes mm-hmm. some of those other competitors and whatnot. Also happen to be a massive Evil Dead fan, as obviously Neil is as well. And so getting to, you know, see how they play in that universe and, you know, talking about the films and the TV series and incorporating that all into this package in a way that's far more seamless than I was anticipating uh, made that one of one of my favorite games of the year. You know, we've talked at length about Weird West already multiple times this year. A fantastic standout that anybody that's even considering checking that out, go in with an open mind, give it more time than maybe you uh, were anticipating to get to some of the weird stuff. But when you really do get to see how that world flourishes into the weird and into the Western vibe of it, um, it really is a special title. Proteus was, again, another game that probably one of the best boomer shooters of that sort of era or generation that I've played recently and how, you know, it takes that fundamental uh, foundation of, you know, classic first person doom and whatnot, capitalizes on that pixelated graphic style while having the sensibility to, you know, modernize the fluidity of movement, environmental traversal, having that fantastic score, which of course is one of my favorite score, was my favorite score of the year. Uh, or one of my favorite scores. And, uh, you know, just the fact that it's able to revitalize the boomer shooter for me in a way that felt fresh while still, of course, drawing from some pretty clear influences Uh, in that regard. Another game that almost made my list, but didn't quite was Closing Shift, which again would have been something perfect for Horror Bites um, that did a great job of, you know, slowly building that sort of uh, mm. the, the mundane nature of working the night shift at a retail type job, but, you know, ramping up with uh, increasingly strange happenings and whatnot while having the sort of simulation mechanics of a simulator and, you know, uh, having enough facets to that, that it didn't end up sort of like grinding my gears or getting tired of that too sure. quickly. Um, I thought there was enough variety in there that I enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, last but not least for me, would be stay out of the house from Puppet Combo. Um, this was one that I unfortunately didn't have enough time to finish just because work has been kind of nuts. Uh, but that was one that from the hour and a half, roughly two hours I played of it, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And just seeing perhaps a new facet of Puppet Combo games or just mechanically speaking, again, I'm not as versed in the entire catalog as uh, mm-hmm. Neil and I'm sure plenty of other people are, but... I appreciated the fact that this was a little more stealth focused from what I'd played previously. And just overall, you know, I'm a sucker for um, their ability to, you know, have killers that if anything, you know, you could say like, oh, that's that seems like what I would expect from a genre film. (laughs) But in that low poly style is able to not only make the character design pop, but the ways in which they're he's able to use the creatures and uh, killers and whatnot um, to their fullest terrifying effect. I really, really am appreciative of and uh, is genuinely terrifying in a way that, again, you can't discount the low poly vibe or aesthetic of those games. But yeah, those are my honorable mentions for the year. Uh, what a year for games. Uh, I have eight. So I <laughs> I had seven. I, don't know. I was like, no, that, that game has to be mentioned somewhere in here. And that game is Oxide Room 104, which is like sort of an escape room game in its own right it's very janky it has awful accents in it like the <laughs> the main character is like this irish dude and you know, having come from an irish family i i can tell when an irish accent is fucking awful and this is there but it's so endearing and there's something about it it, it has 
a boondock saints sort of value in terms of like uh, appreciating it for how bad it is in that regard but you know the game underneath is solid and that helps plenty so that game is you know, so it's you know if we're going on scores this game should be nowhere near uh, this is this is nowhere near like even the top 30 but I have such a fondness for it. I just, I just love it. I love what it does. So, uh, what else we got? So, you will not remain, you know, uh, which we mentioned in Horror Bites as well, which mm-hmm. you know, I find really impactful. Yeah, again, another great example of a game that uh, gets simplicity and then makes you know the most out of simplistic visuals with a really strong story. Um, Silt, which we've mentioned obviously about the visual style, um, you know, for that kind of subgenre of limbo esque, inside esque game, it really did so much that affected me and moved me, and yeah, it, it stays with me. It's just unfortunate. It, there were so many great games, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, the Mortuary Assistant, which you obviously put in your top 10, you know, I'd mentioned last week that you know that what i said on that uh midnight suns which you know i had only just finished after we'd done the first episode so um i had a terrible bug in that game which meant i had to go back a bit but you know for a marvel game you know that basically deals in the same shit as diablo you know with lilith and all the, the dark demonic stuff in the underworld and yeah from the makers of it's come was I ever not going to love that? <laughs> Absolutely Maybe. not. Yeah, you know, it's like <laughs> Marvel and XCOM together. In this, yeah, perfect. But yeah, it deserves mentioning. I think. I think uh, the horror in it is very surface level, and you know, it's very wholesome. You know, which mm. is either an argument against you know what Disney are doing to Marvel anyway, or just actually quite a great representation of what marvel comics are at their best you know if you would get a marvel comics game that felt really like the comics this is it Mm. you know in so many ways fucking hang out with blade watch movies with blade (laughs) read fucking books with blade you know Mm -hmm. it's there and, and it is Blade as you know it, you know. And then there are characters like Magic and Nico who don't get the spotlight, you know, that really do get it here. And, and they make this game so much more special. You know, the Midnight Suns characters in this game get so much love in a game that you know features the top tier Avengers like Iron Man and Captain America and Hulk and stuff like that. It still makes plenty of time for them. You know, the supernatural side of the Marvel Universe and brilliant, you know. Whatever that DLC brings, you know, with getting stuff like Morbius and Venom, whatever, it's only going to get better. But, yeah, it's great. Uh, what else did I have? Da, 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 da. I had the Booty Creek Cheek Freak, which I think is, you know, taste-wise, I get it if you don't find it funny. But for me, I, I found it, hilarious because it was as absurd as it was you know it really did just take the idea of this killer that was out for your ass you know and uh make it into something that felt like a proper 
exploitative horror game perfectly great stuff uh saturnalia um a rotoscoped sort of old school survival horror in many ways really interesting yeah? and you know I've, I've pointed this out on several games you know, and other uh, media where, you know, when you watch something that has that sort of rotoscope feel, it can be really unnerving when you, you see it initially because it can make you feel sick almost because the movement is so jarring and odd. And you could, you know, if you're an idiot, you could easily take that as being, this game is broken, blah, blah, blah. And like, uh, I couldn't get on with it. But, it really just delve into this sort of um, folklore style horror. And, you know, in the same way that Night at the Gates of Hell has this sort of um, vibe of Italian, European sort of horror of the 80s, this kind of has that in its own way. You know, when you go away from the zombie side, you go more to the witch side of stuff like uh, the 70s, like Suspiria. You know, mm. it, it's more like that. And is a hard game to get through but i think the vibe of it really does deserve more praise and finally ghostwire tokyo you know which was in my initial top five i think for the halfway point i, I just yeah just going through that tokyo area in this sort of uh, ghostly form nothing else like it it is just it may have a very absurd anime-esque plot where you know it's like oh you're a dead guy who's now merged with a spirit and now you are fucking like shooting finger guns at other <laughs> spirits but it works and it's endearing and you know it's from the makers of the evil Vin and the evil Vin 2 more crucially and it was supposed to be the evil Vin 3 before it got further into development and they discovered it wasn't quite there to be compared with that but you can feel it you can feel that vibe in there and yeah i think it's the biggest problem with this game right now is that it is tied to playstation and pc i think it needs to be out there on xbox as well just to give it a bit more not to be weaponized in the same way you know this was the last game from bethesda that was exclusive to uh, PlayStation before the sale uh, went through fully so I understand why it kind of got the shit kicked out of it in that regard same with you know uh, Deathloop where you get people that would take it that way but yeah it, it's got something about it that you know I've been to Tokyo and certain areas of Tokyo in so many games without ever actually going to Tokyo and this was the game that really made me feel like I was in Tokyo in a very unique circumstance. You know? And this, that's great. You know, that is the greatest thing about this game for me. You know, even beyond the supernatural element of this game, which is pretty damn good. You know, headless schoolgirls and like umbrella carrying ghosts in uh, pinstripe suits. So yeah, it's got everything. <laughs> that's one that i was definitely uh on my list to finally check out next time it's on sale on steam or something because both you and i believe also uh, our buddy harrison had mentioned how much they enjoyed well, that yeah one. and uh jimmy uh, donnellan as well and he, jimmy as well yeah 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 so plenty of people out there yeah. there were 
half a dozen of us <laughs> at least i'm sure <laughs> well just the three of three of you suggesting it is uh, enough for me to check it out but before we dive into your number one pick let's do a quick recap of the games that we have covered so far in this episode so neil what was your number five my number five was vampire survivors by punkle my number five was growing my grandpa by yames my number four was Weird West by Wolfine Games. My number four was Night at the Gates of Hell by Jordan King. My number three was Signalis by Rose Engine. My number three was Warhammer 40,000 Darktide by Fat Shark Games. Uh, my number two was Immortality by Half Mermaid. My number two was Golden Light by developer Mr. Pink. And now the moment we've all been waiting for, imagine a drum roll. So I'm not going to bang <laughs> on my desk because I don't want to blow my mic out. But Neil... What is your horror game of the year for 2022? So I may have given several clues about this <laughs> through awards and general talk, but it is Norco by Geography of Robots. Now, this isn't what you would necessarily call a traditional horror game, but I would tell you straight away, if you think David Lynch really does get horror without ever really going into horror, this is kind of the game you want to be going for, you know? So Norco is this future noir version of Louisiana where corporations have taken over the place and basically made everything shit. Yeah, big surprise. That's <laughs> too different than our world. Yeah, yeah. And so all the jobs that are left in the area are shit and brutal and violent and one of those jobs is to be bounty hunting so, so to speak but the game comes from two different perspectives generally which is you know a mother who is dying you know uh, that that's your past version and she's doing bounty hunting in order to make money yeah, and uh, basically doing these jobs in this, you know, you know, this game really does just go for the throat of the gig, gig economy, you know, big time. You know, and then you have you know, the child they had who is searching not only, you know, after the mother dies, um, they are searching for their sibling, their brother, having come back to the you know, place of Norco of the title and yeah, the weird shit that comes out of all that really it's a difficult one to sort of describe because you don't want to spoil too much but this is a really really surreal game and as I've pointed out many times on this podcast, being surreal in your games is you know going to win me over pretty easily but this is just on another level you know it has something about it that just makes me marvel on yeah we've talked in the awards about you know, the soundtrack about the visual style you know like there's a reason those two things came up you know as being my choice for you know the winners of those but it's just everything about this game is just haunting 
in a way that you know, traditional scares and gore and whatever, you have all that. But this is just boring into my brain, well beyond play, in a way that no horror game other than this could ever manage. It's a really great satirical game, you know, but it's also just terrifying you know, in, in what it does. And it's surreal in the best way. It goes to places that just seem absurd. It's remarkable. I, I really cannot express enough how I feel about this game. And, um, you know, when I reviewed it, which wasn't that long ago, I just wanted to put it into the inventory episode we did. You know, and at the time I was like, well, maybe it's not horror enough. But then I think of some of the stuff we put in that does have plenty, but isn't quite really, you know, horror in that traditional traditional sense. But this, it's harrowing and affecting in a way that I would liken it to, you know, Cronenberg. You know, you know both Cronenberg. You know, the older mm-hmm. older and younger um in terms of what it goes for but also you know Lars von Trier you know in terms of like melancholia and stuff like that it just has this gloomy despairing nature to it that I cannot escape from I really just I really just cannot get past this game and you know, a year that had had so many strong games, this is just, you know, and I'd heard about it plenty before it came to PlayStation when I reviewed it, you know, because it came out on PC in that first. But, whew, it is just stunning, stellar. As a point-and-click adventure goes, this really does just subvert that idea in a way that is outstanding, you know. And the soundtrack is a huge, huge part of that. You know, for me, I've said before, and I said again, this soundtrack and any soundtrack in a game that really is just marvellous will push a game up into the upper echelon for me, you know, every time. And this is just such a remarkable soundtrack. You know, one that has, you know, I've listened to a lot of, game soundtracks this year from this year you know on various services and this was the one that's just in one fell swoop i've listened to it time and again and just certain tunes that you feel intoxicated by you know you are absolutely into the groove of what it is doing but as a game the key thing i have to take away here is is it's smart it's funny it's horrific, it's satirical. It is the perfect point and click game for the modern era. You know? It really does just get everything right. And I am absolutely blown away with this game. And to the point where we were talking about this all these games, all these things, and as much as I live you know, live and love for immortality, I just kept coming back to this and thinking no this is the game that has to be top of the pile and you know this is the game that wasn't even in my top 10 before we started this 
because I was worried that it wouldn't be horror enough to be considered, you know? And at the same time, I looked at it and thinking, what is more horrific than something that really just puts a mirror up to what we're into as life goes on, but also does stuff that is explicitly, you know, body horror, Cronenberg star horror, you know, it's there. It is so impactful, so evocative, you know, visually, audibly, and in the written word, it is hands down, absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it's up there with one of the best things I've ever played in my entire life. You know, and I'm 41. So that is, you know, a long life of gaming. Yeah. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm not saying this lightly. It is absolutely phenomenal. It deserves everything. All the sales, all the credits, all the broadits. It is just a game that will never, never be away from me. Well, I know what I'm playing as soon as we're done recording this. <laughs> Dark Tide will have to wait for tomorrow. But uh, no, I have this queued now to uh, play. And you told me it was on Game Pass. So I'm definitely going to play this uh, later. But no, I think that, you know, in regards to, you know, what constitutes horror, what like, again, it's it's not about scares per minute, people. It's about how a game is able to take, yes. especially a game such as this, like a text-based adventure or a uh, point-and-click adventure, excuse me, where it's able to take, you know, real wor- the horrors of the real world and then take it into down this kind of cyberpunk dystopian route. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you're able to craft a world that resembles ours while is based in this futuristic setting, and yet there are still similarities and you can exploit and, you know, uh, <laughs> sort of take those to new horrifying uh, lengths in terms of, you know, what corporate overlords will uh, shape society and whatnot and seeing what they would do if they weren't, you know, bound by the traditional laws and whatnot of our world, you know, granted, (laughs) might be heading down that route, it seems. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, some of the things that you've been talking about, you know, how it's able to blend real world sentiment, it's able to have real world commentary, the horrors of our world and of this futuristic world, but still having a humor aspect to it, which, you know, doesn't make it this unbearable sort of gloom and doom experience but enough humor to kind of keep you in the moment but then as you said also it has this fantastic art style which i'm looking at images of it right now and you know it's definitely the type of aesthetic that um, is really you know pairs with my palette for the types of these um, point and click adventures that i'm a fan of but more importantly like you said the music right and i think that within the last two years i've paid so much more attention to not only scores in games but it's film in film is as well, because of how they are able to really make these experiences um, that much more, I guess, I don't know, palatable, but rather palpable for the audience, right? They're really able to get at the emotional core or drive or mm. emphasis of something. Um, and, you know, as we've mentioned previously, the best scores are the ones that you can listen to and enjoy when they're removed from the experience that they're actually a part of, right? And so, you know, I haven't listened to it yet, but from based on what you've said and, you know, generally kind of knowing your palate for music scores and what we've discussed previously, it seems like the type of thing that you'd be able to throw on for, uh, you know, writing music or just oh, you know, ambiance in yeah. general. Um, and I think that that is a added benefit of games that, again, I've come around to in a big way the last few years, just, you know, being able to appreciate how soundtracks not only influence, but, uh, reinforce a game and their thematics and whatnot. And, um, you know, more often than not can do a lot of heavy lifting in some regards for uh, certain titles. But 
that's certainly one that I'm going to uh, be diving into very shortly. And, you know, you saying that it channels both Cronenbergs, both junior and senior, uh, you know, is, of course, speaking my language as much as it does for uh, yeah. you. It, it really is just the most crossbreed Lynchian Cronenberg style game you will ever play. You know, it's like without being like obvious, you know, it's like it, it captures the spirit more than you know, like the obvious sort of touchstones of, of those directors. Yeah, it, it, it's just, yeah, I love it. Simple as that. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, I spoke enough to, uh, that I really shouldn't say anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly, uh, you know, reinforced my emphasis on actually playing this one because you mentioned it previously, but uh, hopefully everybody else out there there will dive into it. Uh, oh, please as do. Well. Yeah, please do. Yeah, so because whatever you think of it, it'd be interesting to hear the experience on that. But um, so if you're number one, we kind of have, unfortunately, a clue as to what it is, but uh, <laughs> we're all the same. I think there's plenty to say about it. So please, Jay, what is your number one? My number one is Signalis from developer Rose Engine. This is one that, you know, we covered on the inventory and it's one that uh, has quite literally implanted itself into my brain and I have not been able to stop thinking about it. So for those that uh, are not familiar, Signalis uh, delivers a pristine top-down classic survival horror framework against a dystopian future nightmare. Uh, you play as Esther, a replica android searching for her lost memories amongst an under underground facility that, while filled with androids and monsters, are simply standing away of the true horror of it all, the truth to her past. Um, you know, we have talked a lot, not only about, of course, survival horror, we've also talked about homage a lot, mm. and specifically with survival horror games. You know, we talked about Tormented Souls earlier in the year, um, and we praised that game for it being a really well-done example of you know, channeling classic survival horror whilst having some tidbits that gave it a little more originality yes. in its own right. Now, not to do a one-to-one -one comparison, if that was an example of a game that, you know, took that Silent Hill sort of Resident Evil framework, but had a few inklings of its own originality, Signalis takes that concept and runs with it as yeah. being one of the best examples out there being a homage to classic survival horror in regards to, you know, Resident Evil and Silent Hill and whatnot, not only from a gameplay standpoint, not only from a storytelling standpoint, not only from an aesthetic and world building standpoint, this is a game that I found to be, you know, it quite literally just after the demo, that was my first interaction mm. with this game or knowledge of that game. It kind of just came out of nowhere for me. And I was so taken with that demo and then to actually sit down and play the game and to see that it capitalizes on all the elements of its storytelling and world that it hints at in that demo, but it takes it so much further with so much originality, with so much refreshing, not only direction, but art style, a blending of different perspectives, which I mentioned earlier, right? You have this somewhat pixelated, I'll say semi-crude sort of gameplay graphical style, right? Where you can make things out, but again, it's pixelated just enough that you can't pick out things in pristine detail. So there is mm. a bit of like, oh, what are the finer details of this? And in that sort of like a little of the unknowing, it makes it that much more terrifying no matter what you're looking at. At the same time, you have these moments where the cutscenes are this gorgeous anime graphical style that 
not only, you know, is the artwork wonderful to look at and horrifying at the same breath, um, it has a great sense of direction that really does, you know, I would say rival film in some regards. I think about that early cutscene when you crash land on the planet and then you kind of you find this mysterious hole and you crawl through this this tunnel basically and you come to this seemingly normal room mm. and it the camera perspective cuts between a computer you're viewing and the character that you're inhabiting and you know the directorial decisions that they make and the changing of perspective so frequently and the gradual sort of realization that like oh what the hell is this what is going on here kind of eliciting this mystery that you know you are going to be spending the rest of the game's runtime exploring i mean that was quite literally a breathtaking opening for me i found you know the way that the score kicks in just at the right moment the way that it asks so many questions and you won't get those answers for a while and yet it's enthralling in a way that you know i attribute to some of my favorite sci-fi sort of horror mystery films um it just puts you in this world that as we noted in our episode of the inventory you know it's not an inherently hostile world from the jump which i could not applaud them more for right mm-hmm. because in that demo granted it's the nature of a demo they kind of shoehorn in the combat mechanic in those opening moments in the actual game that's all removed, which does place a great deal of emphasis on the fact of like getting you into that world, yes. unnerving rather than right out of the gate being like, hey, combat's a huge focus of this game, which that's not to say that they should shy away from that factor. But I think overall, it sets a better precedent because it introduces you to those core mechanics. It allows that shifting of perspectives to really shine and be the star of that opening, whatever, 20 minutes of the game. Um, which I think also, you know, talking about perspectives, it also utilizes a first-person perspective periodically, whether it's in these flashback dream sequences that occur periodically that I think do a great job of, you know, kind of disorienting the player, yeah. trying to get a grasp on, you know, is this reality actually my reality or is this some type of memory that is not my own? And, you know, it plays around with that sort of android sense of, um, you know, not humanity, but just sort of being, if you will, of being a sentient being. And what does that mean? And the experience of androids or humans and, you know, some of the, uh, the crossover between those experiences, but also, you know, it does that with all the puzzle solving sections, which I was a fan of as well. And that you go into these puzzle sections and interact with computers and whatnot in a first person perspective, which, you know, channels like those Resident Evil two vibes, right. Of back in the day and whatnot. Um, and this was just a game that it's a world that, I found to be, you know, structurally reminiscent of my favorite survival horror games. At the same time, though, such a breath of originality. You know, you and I are both noted fans and suckers for space horror and whatnot. And I loved exploring those facilities and just being engrossed by trying to piece together the horrors that happened previously to my arrival. But at the same time, contending with the very current and in my face horrors of these uh, monsters and whatnot. Um yeah. And, you know, the soundtrack, of course, is also fantastic and does such a great job of crafting that atmosphere of giving this the breath of, you know, a lived in space that you are kind of running through for the first time, even if perhaps it's maybe not the first time, uh, akin to what I would say is channeling sort of like running through the police station of Resident Evil 2, right? You mm-hmm. start to familiarize yourself with certain sections like it's the back of your hand. You know, it does abide by some of those staples of survival horror of like, okay, I've got a key card that's been broken in half. I got to find tape and, you know, combining items or interacting with 
various items to inspect them to find, you know, another facet of them that unlock this item in a new way. Um, I'll also say there's a really interesting mechanic that funnels in the radio that you have and how that's played into not only puzzle solving, but at some points also combat, which I found to be really interesting. And it being this thing that kind of takes again, that core survival horror framework for puzzle solving, but then has a few modern additions to it. And it's not to say it's the first that's used radios in some regard, but again, it's this compiling of these very clear homages or influences. And yet overall, it's a game that through its art direction and atmosphere and world building and storytelling is the best example, I think, of one of those games that builds upon that very, you know, revered framework that we all know and love. At the same time, though, to say that it rests on the laurels of just those mechanics would be entirely inaccurate, I find. Oh, no, no, because one of the key things about this that really works is that you are not human. You are a a cyborg, effectively. And so that really should take away from any dread survival horror feel you have, if you really think about it, because... If you're not human, what, what's the investment? What's the involvement? And yet it, it's there. It's absolutely there throughout the game. You, you feel it. You feel the emotion. You know, it's a thing that is often lauded in near Automata, you know, in terms of like having machine people feel like people and having devastating stories, you know, that... that connect you with them and signalis is just great at that too you know it really does just make you you know it gets you invested in in the the story of these people that are you know not people and that's brilliant that's what it should do you know and all throughout to have that you know in terms of gameplay i think is more impressive than story itself because you can craft a story about you know, androids or cyborgs or whatever and make it interesting, you know. But the survival element of that, to make that feel relevant for characters that aren't human is difficult. And yet here it is. You know, I've seen games that have tried, you know, and this really does do a great job at just making that a key part of the storytelling. And I think, you know, the mix of like uh, German sort of European style horror and uh, the Japanese style art style is so key in so much uh, of the darkest anime out there. You know, when you think of Neon, Genesis, Evangelion, or even Attack on Titan, stuff like that, you know, they are embedded in both of those things you know so here we are with something that perfectly captures those but also perfectly captures the spirit of survival horror as it was in the 90s while still being its own thing you know it's like the viewpoint is you know it's a fixed camera in some ways in that you are restricted in what you see and there are places you cannot see as you move but it is more open and but it still gives you that sort of air of uncertainty you know so perhaps the greatest credit you can give this is that 
it achieves so many things at once in such a confident fashion. And then you think of the development team being effectively two people. You know, it just you can't look at this and think anything but respectful. You know, it's it yeah. just it is. It's all it's all inspiring. I think. Yeah, <laughs> in, in much the same way, tormented souls was. You know, it, you, you look at it and you just go, "Well, yeah, this is a small team making something that evokes something classic," and you have to respect that. But here, it's like, I think we've talked about this already, you know, it's like with uh, Weird West, you know, or even Vampire Survivors. It's like going for a simple graphical style gives you more scope for ambition elsewhere. And the understanding of that, I think, is key because I think we need to go through that cycle of things before we can move to the next stage with indie development where you can have something more, you know, something closer to what people want out of their games in terms of visual style and graphics, whatever, and performance, and have that story. You know, it's like, and these are the games that are going to be the great platforms for that. Yeah, and, you know, talking about that graphical style, um, I think also, you know, you can talk about how, oh, are you using, because again, not, <laughs> I never want to compare, you know, games yeah, yeah. one and one, you know, if you think about something like Tormented Souls, which arguably the graphical style of that is more refined, a little more modern, mm. where something like this that is, you know, again, a, I hesitate to say crude, but it's more pixelated. Some parts of, you know, when you're in the game play section of it, you're not in a cutscene, right? No. It is more pixelated. So you don't have that kind of like high def vibe that a majority of people are used to. But that is irrelevant because not only can you say, oh, it's channeling a certain bit graphical style age of games. More importantly, though, the environments are so expressive and they're so varied in ways that it makes it feel like this is, you know, not a real place at times. Right. You're going through this mining facility that has, you know, rooms and corridors that, you know, are filled with blood and monsters and these things. And then you come to like an office or you come to a general's quarters or something like that. And it is so expressive in one of those influences you mentioned, which is like uh, Art Deco or like the German style of uh, architecture in these things. And there are so many different rooms and pockets in this game like yeah. that that are so expressive, despite the fact that it's as pixelated that, you know, not to say that I'm against that or I wish there had been a different graphical style to begin with, but I'm just so appreciative of the fact that they took what on paper might seem like fairly standard types of environments mm -hmm. and they make them expressive in a way that makes them stand out and unique. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that overall, again, that's a testament to this game's art style. It's a testament to really branching out from the norm and making a world that it feels like its own in several different unique ways. Um, and as a complete package, again, it's my game of the year, not only because of my love, of course, for survival horror, but the fact that it's able to, it, I find it to be the gold standard of building upon that that sturdy foundation, but not resting upon those lore, those laurels solely. It yes. really does go out of its way to tell story, having an environment and, you know, the atmosphere and ambiance that goes along with that, that is a tremendous standout and a tremendous effort and, you know, success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd like to say more, but we are 
We're going pretty late on this one. Yep. We, we have so much more to say. So <laughs> Somehow we do, but at the same time, not at all that surprising. Yeah. So all I will say just to add to that is, you know, the best, you know, beyond the, all I've said, the retro tech world of Signalis does play a huge factor in much the same way that Alien Isolation is great because it has that retro tech sort of vibe. Absolutely. You know, but here it's deliberate, whereas, you know, Alien Isolation was actually picking up from a point in history which makes it retro tech so retro tech is brilliant because you aren't going too futuristic you're having some sort of foundation in a past now and it it really just makes it this undefinable point in history you know that you are in rather than we're in the future we're in the past it's like it could be anywhere it could be any time and that's great that's exactly how you should do things well now that we've had our say on the uh, best horror games of the year we're going to turn things over to some of our guests that we've been lucky enough to have over the course of the year to share their favorite games of the year so we will return momentarily hi everyone this is aaron bame game designer and bloody disgusting contributor this year i had a lot of trouble picking my game of the year it came down to three games I was really engaged by the brutal yet empowering tactics of Warhammer 40k Chaos Gate Demon Hunter. I was drawn in by the haunting Hollywood mystery of immortality. But when it came down to it, it was undeniable that Elden Ring was my game of the year. Elden Ring seemed to be a culmination of everything from software had learned in their Soul series. I'm usually not one to like open world games. I find them overwhelming and empty and they feel like they're full of chores but every single thing in Elden Ring felt handcrafted placed with purpose and it was a joy to get around that world I'll never forget the experience of playing this game at the same time as a whole bunch of co-workers and just sharing stories even when we were about 10 hours in we all had completely different stories going in different directions Uh, focusing on different things doing different builds it was like we were all playing a completely different game It was so much fun to share our personal stories and come together over this absolutely staggering game. So yeah, Elden Ring is definitely my game of the year, and I can't wait to see what Armored Core 6 looks like. Hi, Safe Room listeners. I'm Andrew King, and my horror game of the year is Immortality. This is the third FMV game that Sam Barlow has made now, and I don't know if I think it's the best. I still have a soft spot in my heart for telling lies, but it certainly is the most ambitious. Uh, If you haven't played it, you are trolling through a cache of footage from three unreleased films starring a woman named Marissa Marcel. She disappeared, and you are trying to figure out what exactly happened to her, and that may sound like a good hook on its own and it only gets more interesting and more spooky and more lynchian from there it's the most unique game this year that i played is the game i played this year that i can't wait to see iterated on more than any other there's only so many studios that can do something at the scale of elden ring or god of war ragnarok but immortality is a very special game made for a fraction of the budget of either of those games. And I uh, can't wait to see more from Half Mermaid in the future. All right. Have a great uh, end of the year, Safe Room listeners. It's been a pleasure being on the show. Take care. Hello. My name is Brandon Trush. 
I'm a freelance journalist that covers horror video games for a variety of websites like Bloody Disgusting and Fangoria. Looking back on 2022, I'd say my overall game of the year is Saber Interactive's Evil Dead the Game. Evil Dead the Game represents a really exciting direction that horror video games are heading in. It did a great job at uniting both gamers and film lovers alike, and it capitalized on the trend of asymmetrical multiplayer, which, in my opinion, may be the most influential genre of horror gaming in recent years. I love that it successfully incorporates so many elements of the films and television series that fans recognize and love. But I also appreciate that in spite of that, it didn't sacrifice any qualities that would prevent it from being a great game, even if it didn't have the Evil Dead moniker attached to it. I'm confident that the industry will end up looking back on Evil Dead the game as being ahead of its time, and I'm excited to see the ripple effects that it will have on asymmetrical horror in the future. My name's Evan Miller. I'm the former games editor for Rumorg Magazine, and my favorite horror game of the year is Signalis. I was completely blown away. It kind of came in under the radar for me. Can't believe how good it is. One of my favorite horror games uh, of all time, not just of the year. It's a really interesting juggling act of paying homage to classic survival horror uh, while doing something completely different that I've never really seen done in ways I've never really seen done. And that's evident in the way it changes um, stylistically you know, from scene to scene, wears a bunch of influences very plainly on its sleeves. You know, the biggest one being, you know, stuff like David Lynch and um, Neon Genesis Evangelion, you know, both things I'm very, very much into. Uh, And to say too much more, I feel like would give away what makes it so special. So that is, um, that is my game of the year. And uh, please, Please play it. Hi, I'm Harrison Abbott, a long-winded rambler, peddler of idiotic opinions, and sometimes a writer as well, I guess. My game of the year is The Mortuary Assistant, which was so engrossing that it managed to keep me playing despite all the technical hiccups and stability issues that I encountered at launch. Delivering an impromptu elevator pitch during an interview... The developer behind this title distilled his idea down into one simple sentence. Dead bodies in a funhouse. While that kinda tells you the basics, it doesn't really do the game justice, as there is so much more going on here beneath the surface. As a funeral parlor sim, the mortuary assistant feels really authentic and detailed, even if some artistic liberties were taken. The central mechanics are fresh, and the innovative haunt system makes each playthrough totally unique and unpredictable. But best of all, it nails a very specific ambient type of horror, with its chillingly quiet scares that sometimes you won't even notice if you're not paying enough attention. In short, it's a great concept, executed with creativity and passion. Just like Outlast 2. Hi Jay, Neil, hello everyone. My name is Surjan and I run the Horror Games Community, aka Horror Visuals, on Twitter. This year was a goldmine for horror gaming and I play tons of great horror games, finding something to cherish in every single one of them. But my horror game of the year is Signalis, because I'm such a big fan of the classic survival horror formula and Signalis had everything I could ask from a game in that subgenre. It had an intriguing story, a unique art style, fluid gameplay mechanics, item management, creepy atmosphere. It was the perfect survival horror game. Any horror fan should absolutely try it. I hope its developers will continue making even better and bigger games. Thank you for having me and have a great new year. 
Hi folks, it's Mike Wilson, writer for Bloody Disgusting, and for my game of the year, I'm going with Ponkle Vampire Survivors. Uh, now I know that there are better games out there that were released this year, but let me explain. Uh, Vampire Survivors kept me sane throughout the year with my job, because I do more than just video game news here, folks. Uh, the game's 30 minute intervals of gameplay, or 15 minutes if you were able to unlock the hyper mode for each stage, uh, were just the perfect way to unwind without having to become too invested in the game because then I could just get right back to doing what I was doing. Uh, of course, Van since Vampire Survivors is a glorified dopamine factory, you obviously want to keep on playing. Uh, that's something that I never thought that I'd say about a roguelike, uh, since I'm not a big, the biggest fan of that genre. Uh, coupled with the amount of content to unlock, the catchy music, and the very generous price point, even while it's still in early access, you really can't go wrong with Vampire Survivors. Plus, if you're a Castlevania nut like myself, there's plenty of references to Konami's classic series here to keep you playing. Bottom line, just get it. You won't be disappointed. Hello, this is Ian Marvin, a.k.a. Retro Radical, and I'm here to give Safe Room Podcast my horror game of the year. My choice was honestly a little bit hard to come to, because at first I thought I was going to say stay out of the house, but after much internal deliberation, I came to the conclusion that there's really only one answer, and that's... Elden Ring. Frankly, if the goal of horror gaming is to horrify, I can't think of any other title this year that had me in such a constant state of suspense and anxiety as well as Elden Ring did. And while it may have a robust combat system that often empowers the player, I don't think that offsets the fact that you fight a lot of freaky shit in that game and that sometimes the biggest sword won't do jack against a giant or a dragon or an army of tiny pitchfork-wielding goblins. So if that's not horror, I don't know what is. And at the end of the day, when I thought about what game scared me the most, it wasn't the tense moments navigating the claustrophobic environments of Stay Out of the House, which definitely gets a honorable mention, silver medal, but Elden Ring, the world, the gameplay, all of it just had me in such a state of dread that it could not be ignored as my 2022 Horror Game of the Year. And we are incredibly appreciative of all of our guests uh, taking the time to record those clips for us. You know, it's not only great to have them on to chat about a particular game they either pitch us on or, you know, we invite them to chat about in a little more depth, but it's great to hear, you know, also, you know, what other games took up so much of their time during the course, over the course of the year. Um, and again, we are incredibly appreciative of them taking the time to do that. But Neil, that's our 2022. Jeez. I mean, just going back and looking over all of the games that we covered this year, you know, the different formats that we did, right? We did Chopping Block. We, of course, Horror Bites, which I think is uh, fair to say is probably our favorite uh, segment that we do, yeah. you know, outside of normal, either timely or anniversary coverage. Um, yeah, man, just trying to think about all the games we covered leading up to our top tens. Um, sure, yeah, was... it's been something else, you know, um, the year that we, you know, we got picked up for the bloody FM network as well. So that, that's been great, you know, to, that's extended our range somewhat. And we, we have, you know, a modest set of fans, people that listen and are invested in what we do, which is fantastic. I, uh, that is the, Loki aim you know I, I would always want it for people to resonate with it not just listen to it and go you're wrong 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, right. It's engagement, but it's not the engagement you want. It's like you want engagement that uh, brings different opinions, different feelings. And, you know, we, as we've just heard, you know, if we have all sorts of uh, opinions and styles of uh, preference uh, for the games of this year. And that helps us. You know, we love that. We, we love to keep hearing new perspectives on games and for people to bring us new things and, you think of how many people have done that for us this year, you know, have brought us something yeah. and said, you know, here we go, do this. We could do this topic or this game. And it has turned out to be magnificent in every single case, which is, you know, a rarity. You know, it's like you, you can be you know, a bit you know, soft on, on these things and say, oh, you know, everyone's great and blah, blah, blah. But really, really, honest to God, Every every single person who has been on this year, even last year, have been yeah. fantastic, yeah, you know, and really contributed to the discussion and opened up what we discuss about games. You know, mm. I think in ways that we never would have come to if it was just us chatting each other every week. You know? Right. So practical as it is to just be <laughs> two people, it's great to have guests, and we will always welcome back the people we've had before and new people in the future you know we, we would love a more varied audience you know, um and by and by we would love a more varied uh, guest you know so you know it's that type of thing that we sort of uh chatted about when we were you know coming up with the idea of safe room right is the idea that mm-hmm. we want to get lots of different perspectives lots of different backgrounds and chatting about lots of different styles of horror experiences, right? I think, you know, the large swath of our conversations never really revolve around, you know, what moment scared you the most, right? I've mentioned this a couple of times on the podcast, right? It's more about covering horror in a way that it seems the, you know, we'll keep it broad. uh, (laughs) Most publications don't always cover horror in this regard, right? You know, discussing it in the same way that they do any other genre, right? Oh, horror, the only reason that you would ever play or watch or read anything horror related is because you want to be scared. And it's like, yeah. no, I think something that we have done and it's, you know, been helpful having all these fantastic guests. And of course, you know, chatting with you as well over the course of the year and previous year is just, you know, discussing other types of horror games. Yes. They don't even have to be emerated games and they don't have to be these single player jump scare fests. Right. And I think that we've gone out of our way to really try to broaden the general conversation surrounding horror games and whatnot. And uh, I think that's, resulted in some of our best conversations and uh yeah to kind of build off of what you said you know incredibly thankful for everybody that has given us support that's not only listened but also you know sent us emails tweeted to us rated and reviewed us on itunes you know joined our discord group which you know we've got people over there chatting about both horror games and movies and you know trying to create this atmosphere this community generally speaking that you know is open to all and every opinion on horror and it's not really being nitpicky about what is or what isn't horror Mm. but more importantly what horror means to the individual yes um, and the types of experiences that can coexist within that space and the many facets of that and uh yeah you know going into the new year can't wait to continue you know covering both anniversaries new releases horror bites and whatnot but as you mentioned you know reaching out even further to other guests and having, you know, whether that be the dev side of things, whether that be, you know, more journalism side of things. Um, I'm very excited to see, you know, how much we can have a safe room grow in the next coming year. And of course, 
all of the uh, the networking and support that we've gotten from the Bloody FM network, uh, of course, has been a uh, not only a podcast highlight, but uh, a uh, personal highlight, you know, just yeah. thinking about, you know, career wise, something that uh, we dedicate a lot of time to during the week, you know, it might seem like, oh, you know, it's that thing you guys get together and do for 90 <laughs> minutes or two hours. But, you know, planning behind the scenes, editing and whatnot, and um, overall, you know, just getting to uh, get together every week and have some drinks and chat about horror games is, of course, been a massive highlight and uh, yeah. something that I continue to look forward to do in the new year. Yeah, I think um, in a year that's been up and down, I might say, in terms of uh, yeah. writing about games, um, two, the two things have really sort of kept me alive in talking about horror games. And, you know, that's this podcast, you know, especially, you know, because without this podcast, anything else wouldn't happen for me. I wouldn't have the joy de vivre of uh, talking about horror games in a way that isn't, as you just said, you know, about, oh, what's scary? Because as I said very early on in this episode, scary doesn't mean shit. No, it's like, because every, <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you are exposed to horror all the time, scary is a very minute thing that doesn't mean anything anymore. So you have to find the other things that horror does to you. The, the way it needles at you it, and you can find that in so many things that are distinctly horror but you know that you know and you know, shout to dread xp for allowing me to express that same thing in article form as well and the two things have sort of uh been a symbiosis of you know my working life since april really you know so i i've been in a place where I could have fell out of love with all this, you know, which is would have been very unfortunate given, you know, that we had just sort of got in the, the groove of doing this podcast. But those two things have combined to make me care about this in a way that feels more real. Yeah, uh, I'm very hmm. glad for that. Personally speaking, getting to, you know, I obviously do my own solo podcast, mm -hmm. um, but getting to start a podcast with somebody that's as open-minded about horror as I am, has, you know, hopefully made, made me not only better uh, as a podcaster, but at the same time, you know, has really yeah. re allowed me to re-examine a genre that I've always loved, but re-examine and, you know, dive into elements and corners of horror that perhaps I never would have, or if anything, it kind of just like finally gave me that push I needed to dive into yeah. the deep end. You know, I keep mentioning horror bites, but, you know, that was really the type of thing that helped also getting a gaming PC for the first time in a few years. But, you know, that really was the type of thing that made me re-examine my relationship with games because I've, as I've mentioned on the podcast, had been someone that, you know, had these long stints of playing games, took equally long breaks and then came back to games. Yeah. And, you know, being exposed to so many bite-sized horror experiences that, you know, have their play, you know, granted, we did a whole episode talking about our favorite experiences of the year. And then, you know, at the same time, those end, some of those ended up on our game of the year list. And, you know, those short little bite-sized experiences, I find, as anybody knows, the older you get, life, jobs, family, and these types of commitments make it harder to dedicate the yes, normal 30 absolutely. hours or whatever <laughs> to games. Uh, granted, I still have to dive into uh, God of War, Ragnarok, and Elder, Elden Ring uh, during the holiday, <laughs> which thank God for the holiday break. But it is the type of thing that in finding time to play these little 15, 30 minute experiences throughout the week, 
those are the things that keep me invested and keep me, you know, hungry in experiencing new types of horror constantly. Absolutely. And to say I don't have fifty minutes, uh, fifteen minutes after work to play one of those one day, it's like that's not a real excuse. So if anything, it's really rejuvenated my love of not only horror games but of really wanting to find the nitty gritty sort of obscure titles that most people are talking about. Because at the end of the day. I have somebody that I can come to with them and be like, hey, we have to talk about this. Um, and I think that that's been a great uh, revelation of the podcast. Yes. Sir. Couldn't be more excited for diving into the new year. And I will say we will be back on Monday, January 9th, 2023 for our first edition of Horror Bites for the new year. Incredibly excited to dive into uh, a whole new batch of these bite-sized indie slices that uh, I've been talking at length about now and I will proceed to shut up about. But for the last time this year, Neil, as always, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Indeed, and happy holidays to all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. You can also join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast. You can also drop us an email over at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thank you again for your continued support of the show. It really does mean the world to us and drives us to continue highlighting standout titles from the genre we all love. 